Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 173. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Cracking show today we have. We've got the actual third part of the Kim Stanley Robinson story coming up today that escape from Kathmandu. I'll tell you about that a little bit later but had loads of great responses from that story so this is the end of Kathmandu. I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have a short story by Damien G. Walder. Our fact article today comes from Morgan Saletta with his Everything. Then we have some main fiction, which is Jumpers by the writer Mary Rosenblum. Next up is Science News by JJ Campanella. Then we've got the third part of Kim Stanley Robinson's Escape from Kathmandu, the third and final part. That's proven a very popular story, and thank you for all the emails regarding that one. And it's the week where we do the cover art as well, and just have a look at that cover art. It is fantastic. It is by multimedia artist Hamakla Pierre. I'll give you a little heads up for Hamakla. He is a Toronto-based artist. He says he wor- his work reflects the diversity of an artist who's created concepts for children's television show characters, given video game monsters and off-screen life as collectible figures, created teaching videos for users ranging from professional artists to school children, who is as comfortable working with oil on canvas as he is in digital 3D or flash. And he says he's dedicated to sharing with others his dedication to art and its many forms. Well, Hamaga, this is a fantastic bit of artwork. Thank you so much. I'll put a link on to Hamaga's blog site and website. You can go over there and have a look. Do check it out. Come over to the front of the website where you can see it in all its glory. (laughs) 
We'll dive straight in today's show because it's a fun-packed show. We have a little short story, a very little short story by Damien G. Walter called Momentum. And anyone who used to go over to and listen to the Sofa Note show, that's where you'll, you'll recognise Damien G. Walter's name. Damien was a frequent guest on the Sofa Note show. He, he was on there many times as well. So actually, you'll go back there. You can still see the links and still listen to Damien G. Walter. But he is a writer of the Weird and Speculative Fiction. He's done some great stories in his time. He's been over to, as well, the Clarion Workshop. Have a look over there on his blog. It tells you all about that. He also blogs over at The Guardian Online as well, so a very important person. Put a link on to Damien's blog because it is a great one to keep checking in every now and again. Damien, this is a fantastic story. It is narrated by Victoria Kelly. Victoria says she lives in Colorado where she is an artist known for her stained glass pin-up work. I'll put a link on to her website. She says she's currently a stay-at-home mom who spends her afternoons reading stories to a captive audience of one. Well, Victoria, you've got a few more than one today. This is a great little narration. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... Momentum by Damien G. Walter When Great Uncle Peter came to live with our family in the house by the sea, I asked my mother why it was he never spoke. My mother explained that Great Uncle Peter had always been silent, that when he was born, he came out without even a scream. Great Uncle Peter could have only been young when the family, his mother and father, and his sister Ranievskia, my great-grandmother, came over the sea from the old country. And in the smoky streets they learnt the tongue of their new home to speak in the world, and kept the language of the old country for home. But great-uncle Peter spoke not a word of either, and years passed, and then decades, and my grandmother was born, and my mother, and then me, and as far as anyone knew, great-uncle Peter said never a word. We knew that Peter was special, and we looked after him. Through generations of the family, he was passed from one relative to the next, always the women watching over this silent, detached man. But then Grandmother died of old age, and it came my mother's turn, and there it skipped a generation. My mother was a working woman and didn't have the patience to nurse Great Uncle Peter. At first she panicked when my father brought this strange savant to our house by the sea, panicked at the years of life she saw slipping through her fingers, sucked away by Peter's needs. My parents advertised for a nurse. They could afford this with the money from two jobs that had already bought the big house and the best schools for me and my two brothers. But the nurse was never needed. Once a day, I would take Great Uncle Peter for a long walk along the seafront, and after only a few days, we became a familiar sight on the promenade. The stooped, yet still tall old man in the heavy black overcoat, the young girl with masses of unruly blonde hair in her own red windbreaker. The pebble was always with him. At dinner times, he would pop it into his pocket. When he slept, it lay on the side table beside him. At any other time, it was in his hand, rotating in his long, supple fingers. For months, I am certain, I suppose that he took it from the beach. One day, I looked at it more closely. The form of the stone was depressed in two places, where his thumb and forefinger rubbed against its milky surface. I remarked on this to my mother, and she started with surprise. Yes, 
Great Uncle Peter had had the stone ever since she could remember, maybe as far back as his being a boy and always churning, turning, turning in his fingers until its shape became forever altered. On our last walk along the seafront, I took Peter down to the edge of the shore itself, a short walk from the promenade over the beach of gray pebbles that we rocked and rolled our way over in long stumbling steps. From the shore, we watched the sun drop towards the sea and the pink sky creep upwards from the flat horizon. The waves crashed in towards the beach, climbing higher up the narrow sand channel with each attempt and threatening to flood my expensive shoes. I was looking down at those very shoes when I felt Great Uncle Peter beside me move with a speed and determination I had never guessed him capable of. I looked up to see his long arm drawn up and back, the cupped hand close by his cheek, gripping the pale pebble. He stayed in that pose for only a second before his arm swept forward, the hand unclasped, and the pebble was sent soaring out over the waves in a massive arc. We stood silently watching the stone diminish into a tiny speck and then dip down and vanish into the cold waters of the sea, its sound lost among the roaring of the waves. My great-uncle Peter looked down at me. The first time he had seemed to even notice his niece, and quite unexpectedly, a giant smile cracked his face in two. Hello, he said. Everything now will be just fine. And then on that spot, he simply collapsed. His heavy body, that I had no way to hold up, falling against the mattress of smooth pebbled beach with a clatter and a crunch and the stone sank beneath the waves. My father found the papers beneath great-uncle Peter's bed the day we returned from the hospital. They were written in a tiny, tight calligraphy of nonsensical scratches that spread over page and then page and then page of notebook after notebook. We had never seen great-uncle Peter write. The edges of the pages were worn round from fingering, yellow stains creeping inward into their whiteness. The eldest were thin and brittle as though they would crumble under the touch, and the newest had been closed for the last time many years before. I keep them now in two large plastic boxes. When I peel back the lids, the air they release is impregnated with the scent of those pages, the feeling of those words. I take them, and I lay them side by side on the carpet of our bedroom floor, and stare at the neat rows of nonsensical letters. I sit and I stare for hours that can become days until my husband or my son or then my grandson pull me away. There isn't any sense in those words. However hard I try, I can't find a thing in them. But however hard I try, I can't stop searching for their meaning. Those tiny shapes scare me more every day because I know... I know that something out there understands them. I remember Great Uncle Peter's stone crashing down into the sea, its ripples quickly lost among the waves, then carried to the farthest shore and off into the future. For all our sakes, I hope he hit what he was aiming for. <laughs> There you go. Thank you, Damien. Don't forget, copyright is Damien G. Walter. Look out for more work, hopefully by 
Victoria Kelly as well. Victoria, thank you so much. So we come on to Morgan Saletta with his Everything article. Morgan, sir. Hello and welcome everyone out there. This is another episode of Life, the Universe and Everything. Reflections in Philosophy, Science and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saletta. Before I begin today's episode, I thought I'd just start on a lighter, easier note. Talk about some of the reading I've been doing during the uh, vacation period we've just had. I was fortunate to have a week and a half off during the Christmas period and spent a couple days down by the seaside with a couple of books. I bought for my girlfriend a copy of Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. It's an excellent hardcover book in the Golanx SF Masterworks series. And curiously enough, I'd never read Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, so I really enjoyed reading this a metaphor for nuclear destruction. Dr. Felix Honecker, one of the founding fathers of the atomic bomb, has left this deadly legacy, and it's a good end-of-the-world tale. I very much enjoyed it. I also ordered online a copy of I Am Legend from the same series, although this was a paperback, of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. It's a vampire novel, which I've never read, um, and it was surprisingly good. It started off feeling a little bit cliche. I thought, oh, no, it's not going to be that great with, you know, killing vampires with stakes and everything like that, but rapidly transforms into a sort of a modern, more science fiction-y uh, vision of the vampire, um, and it was very, very well written. I really enjoyed it. And finally, I read a copy of Peter F. Hamilton's Fallen Angel. Uh, Peter F. Hamilton's one of these, uh, oh, I, I, I lump him in the same group as uh, Ian M. Banks, this sort of British neo-space opera. You know, it's galaxy-spanning, universe-spanning uh, visions of the future. Really excellent. Very much enjoyed it. It was a, a great romp through uh, many worlds, uh, and I highly recommend it. I don't know about you, but it's it's rare these days that I get to sit down and enjoy a book, let alone a, a series of books like that. That was uh, really a great way to sort of end the year and begin the next one. I hope that you enjoyed your holiday season, too. So with that, let's begin this episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything and really dive into it. Today I'd like to continue the last episode, which was entitled The Android in the Looking Glass. And this will be really the Android in the Looking Glass Part 2. Last time I spoke about a hall of mirrors in which we see ourselves reflected, and through these reflections, gain a truer understanding of ourselves. And, as I suggested, science and science fiction have added three new mirrors to this hall, the ape, the android, and the alien. In the last installment, I focused on the android, the artificial machine or being meant to mimic a human being. In that discussion, I also clarified some related terms, robot, cyborg, and artificial intelligence. And, as I've said, I'd like to start today's discussion once again with the android in the looking glass. Not to stretch the visual metaphor too greatly, but the hall of mirrors we find ourselves in is a tricky place of illusory certainty, where reflections blur and scatter as we shift our attention and focus, and mirrors reflect upon mirrors into murky, infinite distances. And so, as we look into the mirror-marked android, we may see in its shadowy depths lurking robots of multiple forms, the dense neural networks of artificial intelligences, and half-human, half-machine cyborgs. In my last discussion, I ended with the discussion of Philip K. Dick's android replicants as they appear both in his book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?, and in Ridley Scott's film adaptation, Blade Runner. I also spoke of Descartes' philosophical musings on humanoid machines, of Alan Turing's famous test of machine intelligence, and segued over to Dick's Voigt-Kampf test, designed not to test intelligence, which it assumes, but the ability to empathize, to emotionally identify with another being, 
which is at the heart of our moral obligations to others. For to be able to put oneself in another's metaphorical shoes, to identify with them both physically and emotional, is indeed at the heart of that most basic of moral obligations, which is most succinctly put in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the ultimate statement of enlightened self-interest is altruism, if there ever was one. In Duandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick reflects extensively on the moral importance of empathy, which serves as the basis of mercerism, a kind of machine-enhanced collective hallucination and religious experience which humans are capable of, but androids are not. Where Descartes sees the lack of a rational soul as that which defines humanity as opposed to animals and machines, Dick sees the difference as our ability to empathize. Deckard, reflecting on why it is morally acceptable to retire androids, decides that it is because they are cold predators. In this passage, Deckard reflects on empathy in biology. Empathy, he had once decided, must be limited to herbivores, or anyhow omnivores who could depart from a meat diet, because ultimately, the empathetic gift blurred the boundaries between hunter and victim, between the successful and the defeated. As in the fusion with Mercer, everyone ascended together, or, when the cycle had come to an end, fell together into the trough of the tomb world. Oddly, it resembled a sort of biological insurance, but double-edged. As long as some creature experienced joy, then the condition for all other creatures included a fragment of joy. However, if any living being suffered, then for all the rest the shadow could not be entirely cast off. A herd animal such as man would acquire a higher survival factor through this. An owl or a cobra would be destroyed. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. Leaving aside the questions of how, whether, and which animals can feel empathy, the problem for Deckard is that he begins to feel empathy for androids, and he is faced with conflicting evidence that suggests that the Nexus 6 androids aren't just pretending to have emotions, they really do, although in the book they remain fundamentally different from us. Many of Philip K. Dick's works involve a strong element of the psychological concept of the uncanny, or in the original German, the unheimlich. First developed by Ernst Jentsch in 1906 and later modified and developed by Sigmund Freud, the concept of the uncanny is crucial to scholarly discussions of science fiction, speculative fiction, and the horror genres, and it is also an important concept of modern robotics theory as well, as we will see shortly. The word uncanny is, of course, a familiar one. It conjures up other words such as creepy, strange, and frightening. When something is uncanny, it is both familiar and strange, and it is the dissonance between the two that makes us uncomfortable, mistrustful, frightened, even revolted and hostile. According to Jentsch, in literature or on stage, the uncanny can be a powerful tool for creating excitement and artistic pleasure in the reader or viewer. Jentsch cites the fantasy works of E.T.A. Hoffman as particularly good examples of the uncanny and writes, In storytelling, one of the most reliable artistic devices for producing uncanny effects easily is to leave the reader in uncertainty as to whether he has a human being or rather an automaton before him in the case of a particular character. Further on, he writes, Another important factor in the origin of the uncanny is the natural tendency of man to infer, in a kind of naive analogy with his own animate state, that things in the external world are also animate or, perhaps more correctly, are animate in the same way. The roboticist Masahiro Mori has posited a hypothesis known as the uncanny valley. According to Mori, as robots are made more lifelike or human-like, our emotional response to them is at first increasingly positive. However, as they become more and more human-like and yet not quite convincing, 
there is a rapid negative response to them, which is similar to the revulsion we feel towards a corpse, or in horror movies, to a zombie. However, the hypothesis goes, as we increase the lifelike or human-like characteristics, we once again see a positive emotional response, as the robot becomes more fully lifelike, more fully human. If we plot this response on a curve, this rapid dip is known as the uncanny valley. While many of the androids in science fiction have moved beyond the uncanny valley, they do not provoke fear or disgust, but actually engender positive emotional responses from human beings, empathy, even friendship, and in some cases, show a kind of reciprocal response. In Star Trek The Next Generation, for example, data is shown gradually accumulating experiences such as friendship and sorrow, even love, and the fact that he has done so, in addition to his sentience, forces Starfleet to recognize its moral obligations to him in the excellent episode I mentioned last month, The Measure of a Man, in which Whoopi Goldberg helps Jean-Luc Picard realize that if the Starfleet court rules that data is property, they are advocating the enslavement of a fellow sentient being. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Deckard's response to androids lies somewhere between the uncanny valley and a positive response. In the following passage, Deckard begins doubting his moral position regarding androids when he encounters a fellow bounty hunter, Phil Resch, whom he both suspects of enjoying having killed the android female Luba Luft and of being an android himself, although in fact he is not. At the same time, Deckard is confronted with the implications of his doubts. He had never thought about it before, had never felt any empathy on his part toward the androids he killed. Always he had assumed that throughout his psyche he experienced the android as a clever machine, as in his conscious view. And yet, in contrast to Phil Resch, a difference had manifested itself, and he felt instinctively that he was right. Empathy towards an artificial construct, he asked himself? Something that only pretends to be alive? But Luba Luft had seemed genuinely alive. It had not worn the aspect of a simulation. You realize, Phil Resch said quietly, what this would do if we included androids in our range of empathetic identification as we do animals? We couldn't protect ourselves. Absolutely. These Nexus 6 types, they'd roll over us and smash us flat. You and I, all the bounty hunters, we stand between the Nexus 6 and mankind, a barrier which keeps the two distinct. Deckard's dilemma is a profound one. Are androids only pretending to be alive, simulating emotions and life interests? Or are they really alive, really deserving of empathetic identification? In addition, and underlying his crisis, is the fear that perhaps humanity is about to be usurped from its throne, overthrown by the artificial beings it has created and enslaved, a fear far from unique to Dick's works. Nor is this philosophical dilemma a trivial one, something which is entertaining for science fiction fans, but with no bearing on real life. If we take a quick look at the history of science, we see that science has led to what I like to call a double fall from grace. The first of these was the Copernican Revolution, in which humanity found its world, the Earth, was no longer the center of the universe, no longer the figurative apple of God's eye. In much the same way that Europeans were forced to examine both their concept of humanity and the nature of their central creation myth when they first encountered Africans and indigenous Americans, humanity now had to consider the possibility of other populated planets, a theme I discussed in a previous episode. And so, now the Earth and humanity with it was dethroned from its central place in the universe. And then came the second great fall from grace, the Darwinian Revolution. Until Darwin, Western humanity could still comfortably view itself as the pinnacle of God's creation, 
at the very least here on earth, still comfortably enthroned at the feet of God with all the rest of creation under its dominion. The implications of the Darwinian revolution are still being felt today and, in many cases, resisted. Instead of being the top link in a great chain of being, we are a leaf on a great bushy tree, and there is every reason to believe that, like other beings before us, we will perhaps give rise to new species, or perhaps we will be a dead end, but either way, we will most certainly go extinct. And it is here, I believe, that many of our conflicting thoughts and emotions regarding androids, and indeed of robots and AI, find their origin. We fear that machines will overtake us or dethrone us as rulers of the earth, as the most intelligent beings we know. Will our machines become our companions, prevented from causing us harm by some form of Asimov's laws of robotics? Will we be forced, when and if our creations become sentient, to grant them rights, such as we do for some animals and at least theoretically all humans? Will we enslave them, and if so, will they rise up and crush us? These are issues that are pertinent not only in science and speculative fiction, but to actual researchers in AI and robotics, indeed to all of us. Joseph Weizenbaum, an early AI researcher at MIT who created ELIZA, the world's first chatbot and artificial psychologist, was so troubled by how human beings interacted with his non-intelligent but cleverly scripted program that he halted his research and wrote a book, Computer Power and Human Reason, in which he denounced AI research as unethical. According to Weizenbaum, any real artificial intelligence would be by definition autonomous and, more importantly, because of its vastly different substrate or support, alien. It would not share our emotional and moral constraints and ethics. This is the problem faced by Deckard again. The android's interior difference, as tested by the Voigt-Kampf test, proves they are different and dangerous. Or does it? More recent robotics researchers, such as Hans Moravec in his book Mind Children, and Rodney Brooks in his book Robot, point out that our machines are becoming more biological, more lifelike, while we are increasingly gaining power over our own biology and our own bodies, able to replace some parts with biomechanical prostheses, and are on the verge of perhaps being able to grow new organs at will. Thus, the distinction between ourselves and our technology is becoming blurry. Philip Dick's androids are biotechnological, and they foreshadow some of the ways that the ongoing information and biotechnological revolutions will transform the world around us, ourselves, and our machines. Machines will become less machine-like, more lifelike, incorporating things such as DNA computing, perhaps, as well as biologically inspired components and behavior. Even without intelligent machines and androids, our technology and our computing machines have, as Marshall McLuhan famously pointed out in his book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, become both extensions of ourselves and an environment in which we ourselves operate and which mediates our interactions with the world. In books like Schismatrix by Bruce Sterling, these mechanical and biotechnological visions of a trans or even post-human future find life, and we are treated to an epic panorama of the future of the human race as it expands into the solar system, splitting and bifurcating into both new biological entities and disembodied and uploaded consciousnesses, which no longer have the biological drives and emotions which are part and parcel of our biologically embodied lives. And so, reflections on today's science and technology merge with science fiction, and it is here where science fiction enables us to reflect on our present while illuminating possible futures, and of course, lest we forget, entertaining us at the same time. 
This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Morgan, my friend, thank you very much. You know, what I love about Morgan's little lectures is... It's like going down, it's like falling down a rabbit hole, you know, they just lead you away off on totally, you know, things you've never even thought about before as well. So, Morgan, keep doing that, sir. Thank you so much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes from Mary Rosenblum. And actually, Mary was one of the writers that was in Starship Sova Stories, Volume 2, yes. And if you got that book, you would realise Mary is actually a pilot as well. Flies her own planes, and in the extras section, Mary very kindly gave us some scans of uh, documents for flying and like a, a route where she kind of flew around as well. So, you know, you just that's what I loved about those little extras. You didn't expect, you know, you don't know what people's up to in, in their other part of lives. You know, you know, everyone's a writer, or you know, who's writers and that, but just little, little insight into what else they do. And like I say, Mary's blooming pilot flying around there. Mary is a prolific short story writer. First story came out in 1990, The Awakening. In 2009, she wrote four short stories. She's also got some novels out. The Drylands came out in 1993. She had The Stone God in 1995. And the last novel was Horizons, 2006. She's got some collections of her short stories, Synthesis and Other Virtual Realities, and Water Rights. And if you remember, a while back we played a Mary Rosenblum story, which was The Rainmaker. That was actually in Oral Delights, show 31. So that's going back a while as well. This story is narrated by Randolph Swartz. Randolph, as you know, has done a couple of narrations for Starship Sofa. We've got some more in the bag by Randall. But he also hosts Floss Weekly podcast over there at Floss Weekly. It's part of the Twit Network, which, as you know... Leo Laporte owns. Last time I was talking to Randall on the on email, he says he had something like fifty thousand subscribed listeners to his show. So <laughs> what a popular show. Randall, this is a great narration. Thank you so much. So Starship Sova is very proud to present Jumpers by Mary Rosenblum. One moment he was sitting on the edge of the Novo Brasilia plantation in a crappy government built hut. His equipment stacked as crookedly as a child's blocks before him. The next instant, faceless, camo-clad figures were bursting through the doors and windows of the hut, rifles in their hands. He had spent sweaty hours stapling that damn screening over every opening to keep the swarming jungle bugs out. Joaquin felt a single flash of annoyance as the mesh ripped loose. Then a rifle butt hit him in the temple, exploding annoyance and vision into meaningless shards of light. Night. Joaquin stared at the sky. Between the stars, darkness. That's what matters, he was telling someone. Not the stars. We know what the stars are, how old they are, how long they'll live. No, it's what lies between them that is the mystery. Shapes of blackness even more profound than the space between the stars fell like slow rain down onto a canopy of the green jungle. Jumpers. Look, he cried. Look, I was right. Chenko was right. They're real. But no one was listening or there to see, and the falling, floating jumpers vanished. Joaquin struggled to open his eyes. Dream, he thought hazily, and winced as the color assaulted his aching head. Where? 
He struggled to bring that light and color into focus. Not the hut. He was lying on a mat that felt like frayed string beneath his fingertips. Green and brown resolved into leaves above his face, and thick hanks of dark red stems strung with dozens of orange and yellow fruits. Rainforest canopy, he thought fuzzily. But the plantation hadn't allowed him access, so he couldn't be in there. Memory rushed in. Camo-clad intruders, ripping screens, the rifle butt. He tried to sit up, winced and groaned as pain lanced through his brain. Green twilight surrounded him, thick with humidity, warm as spit. The strings of fruit brushed his face, filling his nostrils with a thick scent of overripe figs. Moss patted the huge limbs all around him, studded with drooping emerald fronds of miniature ferns. Limbs. Joaquin looked down, down, sudden, clammy sweat plastering his shirt to his brown skin, nausea twisting him in the belly. The huge trunk dwindled into shadow below him. Clutching the flimsy platform he laid on, he lifted his eyes quickly as the branch seemed to tilt beneath him. More limbs radiated from the sleek gray trunk of the enormous tree, thick enough to walk on, to sleep on. Between two adjacent branches, a platform had been built from branches, roofed with thick, leathery leaves. Familiar plastic boxes were stacked haphazardly beneath that flimsy protection. His equipment, irreplaceable some of it. He scrambled to his feet, swaying over the shadowy abyss below. No! That single syllable, high-pitched and resonant, startled Joaquin so that he nearly lost his balance and fell after all. It had been spoken in the mongrel Spanish-Portuguese native language that he had acquired through suppression and hypno-implantation. He looked up, wincing in pain, searching the leaf shadows for the speaker. Child, he thought, up here? She clung to the trunk a meter above him, head downwards, hands and feet splayed on the smooth bark, wearing nothing but shorts. Joaquin felt himself staring at her small breasts with her dark areolas and blushed. Her skin was as dark as his, but she lacked the broad face, a genetic echo of his distant Mayan ancestors. Her face was elfin and pointed, and she was smaller than an eight-year-old. Then he saw her hands and feet. Her fingers were longer than his, with thick spatulate pads and long, shiny nails. Her toes were as long as her fingers, and she clung to the slippery bark of the tree with those clawed fingers and toes, her dark eyes reflecting glints of green light. Oh, God. I'm Zlia. She pushed lightly off the trunk to drop to the limb inches in front of him. Joaquin recoiled, repulsed by her skinny child's body and her weird digits. A genin. Like the huge productive trees that had replaced the original wild rainforest. But it was illegal to alter the human phenotype. Death penalty illegal. Hello, Zlia. His implanted numb brain supplied the right words. How did I get here? I used a cargo sling and a hover. The man's voice came from behind Joaquin, tinted with amusement. It's designed to lift harvest tanks after the trees are tapped. In fact, I stole it from a harvest crew. I brought your stuff, too. Your buddies with the guns seemed to think it was valuable. Joaquin blinked as he realized that the speaker was right behind him on the limb, as if he had teleported there. A head shorter than Joaquin, he was fairer, a Euro mix with curly auburn hair and muscles like a competition bodybuilder. I hope for your sake it was worth the fucking effort, the man said and grinned. Slea, you get today's quota of frogs yet? 
She winked, bared small teeth in a feral grin, and skittered up the trunk of the tree, her movements quick and inhuman. "'You've met Zlia?' The man noticed his reaction, and his grin mocked Joaquin, ugly with bad teeth. "'Ah, we're such hypocrites. It's okay to change any of God's creatures to suit, as long as we don't alter that human face and form. Although it's perfectly fine to fix us if we're broken inside, as long as we don't look different outside. I think Zlia likes your shirt.' Joaquin stared down at the bright T-shirt he'd bought at the shuttle terminal. Brilliant frogs climbed across the front, neon blue and black, screaming orange and lime green. Retro and out-of-style retro at that. He had ducked into a souvenir shop because he thought one of Father's watchdogs was following him. The shop had had an actual living clerk, and he had been too embarrassed to leave without purchasing something. Arrow Poison Frogs the man nodded at the pictures, winked. She probably figures that you're a long-lost cousin. You look a little like her. She just startled me, that's all, Joaquin flushed. Who were the men who attacked me? They wanted money. Another kidnap, another payoff by his father. He wondered how soon this man would get around to money. And who are you, and how did you manage to take me and my stuff away from them? The frogs told them to take a nap. The man's grin had grown thoughtful. I don't know what they were after. I recognize two of them. They work for plantation security. Did you piss off the plantation cartel? They wouldn't give me a visitor's permit. I don't think they piss off that easily. The man raised one eyebrow. Well, maybe you know and maybe you don't. I'm Silvano. I live here. Joaquin Pereira. He gave his real name to see if Silvano recognized it. He didn't. This is plantation forest, isn't it? It's illegal to live here. No kidding, but they only care about the sap. They don't look up. Fungus grew from the gray bark of the trunk, shaped like fleshy, trumpet-shaped blossoms. Could I check my stuff? Joaquin asked cautiously. It's uh, pretty specialized, not worth much to anyone but me. Your friends thought it was worth something, Silvano smiled lazily. They were wrong, Joaquin stood up, no longer giving a damn about the drop. Nobody gives a shit about what I'm doing, so the equipment isn't worth a Nuevo Real, except maybe a scrap. Everyone is worth something. So what is your research? Silvano's tone was lazy, but his eyes had gone narrow and hard. I'm looking for jumpers. Joaquin watched a small red and black wasp creep down the fungus flower's throat. Do you know what dark matter is? He sensed Silvano's silent headshake. It's stuff we can't measure, but we know is out there between the stars. Too much of it. Nobody knows why, and nobody but a handful of theoretical physicists gives a damn. Neither do I, Silvano shrugged. In the fungus flower's throat, the wasp seemed to be struggling. There was this crazy physicist back in the last century who worked with dark matter. He postulated that there are multiple universes, all expanding together like Chinese boxes nested inside one another. He theorized that all the dark matter that shouldn't be there is from other universes beyond ours and is falling through our own universe. Kicked out by jumpers, he said softly, the words echoing in his pounding head. Perhaps people are escaping from their universe, leaving it, jumping, and we catch a glimpse of them as they fall through our universe. But since they're not part of our universe, we see them as dark matter. The wasp had escaped. It poised on the thick orange lip of the fungoid throat, shaking its wings in a dazed fashion. 
You want to find something that isn't there because maybe that means there are people jumping out of other worlds? Savano's dark eyes were unreadable in the dim light. Boy, you are indeed insane. I hope someone loves you enough to pay for you. I'm not a boy, Joaquin said softly. Doesn't it mean anything to you that there might be other universes besides ours? That the beings there can escape? There is no real escape. Savano stuck out a finger to the wasp, and it climbed onto his hand. The fungus there has infected the wasp with its spores. It will die, and its corpse will nourish the spores as they begin to grow. But it will not die before it has laid its eggs on the back of a green caterpillar. The larvae will burrow into the caterpillar and eat it hollow. See, you see? His eyes bored into Joaquin's. There is no real escape. Who loves you, kid? Joaquin watched the wasp stretch its transparent wings and shuddered. My father loves his son. He'll pay for his son if you demand ransom from him. He lifted his eyes to meet Silvano's dark stare. Understand that he will punish you for doing that, asking him. I'll take my chances, Silvano drawled. What do you want the money for? He looked around at the crude platforms. You want to go buy stuff? Live in a gated condo on a nice clean beach? I would like your father's private access, Silvano said gently. There's only one way to jump out of my universe, no matter what your dark friends may do. Joaquin looked down towards the invisible, shadowed ground. Two weeks, he said. I want two weeks to record my jumpers. I'll pay you. Not as much as my father, but you can take the money and be safe. He looked up, met Silvano's dark stare. I just want two weeks. I just want to prove that the other beings are passing through our universe. This is going to be my only chance. Why? Because my father will make sure I never touch this equipment again, and nobody really believes Chenko's theories these days. Sivano laughed, throwing his head back so that his ugly, crooked teeth flashed in the light that filtered through the leaves. You really are nuts, he said. I like that. You give me your father's access now, and I'll give you two weeks. After that, I present your daddy with a fat bill. You'd be better off to take what I can give you, Joaquin shrugged at Silvano's head shake. My father will pay you whatever you want. Punishment rarely has anything to do with money. Joaquin recited his father's private access. It sometimes bothered him that he remembered it so easily, when he normally couldn't remember an access for shit. There was a truth there that he didn't want to examine too closely. He closed his eyes his vision webbed with blood-red lightnings that danced in time to the throbbing in his head. Silvano grasped Joaquin's chin with surprisingly gentle fingers. He peered into Joaquin's eyes one after another, then nodded, apparently satisfied. I thought they'd cracked your skull for a while. It hurts. Joaquin touched blood-matted hair and winced. Zlia will fix it. She'll feed you, too. Silvano pulled out a tiny remote control unit. What about my equipment? Joaquin scrambled to his feet as a miniature hover suddenly rose from the shadows. It had room for a single person and cargo clasps beneath it. Go ahead and set it up. Savannah leaped lightly into the seat of the open cockpit, unperturbed as the machine shied skittishly. Ask Zlia. The hover darted up and into the canopy, scattering leaves and torn blossoms as it punched through and up into the sky. You promised me two weeks, Joaquin yelled after him. He does what he says, Silvano. Celia's voice right behind him nearly sent Joaquin head first off the limb. Don't 
do that, he faced her, sweating. Your head hurts. She tilted her face up to meet his gaze. Sit. He sat because he was feeling dizzy, and this was not a place to be dizzy, but he couldn't hide his flinch as she laid claw-tipped fingers across his forehead. I bother you. She pulled something from her thick black hair. He thought at first that it was a crimson flower or some kind of ornament, but suddenly he realized it was a small, brilliant frog with black legs and belly, shiny enough to be made of polished plastic. It stared at him with black, beady eyes, its ruby throat pulsing. No. He pushed her hand away. No, thanks. She grabbed his wrist with her free hand and dug her thumb into his flesh. Joaquim's arm went instantly numb to the elbow. Before he could react, she had placed the flog gently on his shoulder. He yelped as it leaped onto the side of his throat. The cold grip of its tiny feet filled him with clammy horror, and he swallowed dry mouth. The pain in his head stopped, just like that. Zlia smiled as if he had thanked her. Endorphins, she said as she lifted the creature from his neck. Endorphins? Joaquin watched the frog burrow into her hair again. His head felt fine. Great. Even the gash in his scalp had stopped hurting. It soaked through my skin, he said. Are they... His brain groped for words. Are they natural? Silvano buys the eggs, she said and shrugged. I take care of them and they grow. Then she gathered herself and leaped for the platform. White-knuckled, Joaquin waited for her to miss, to fall, because you couldn't just jump across. She landed lightly. In balance. Suddenly her long limbs and skinny child body made sense. She was created to move like this, just as the frog had been created to exude an endorphin-like compound from its skin. Because nothing here was natural. Not the trees, not the creatures. Drugs, Joaquin said with disgusted comprehension. That's what Silvana does here, doesn't he? Black market naturals. The current fad, lucrative. He glanced around at the stark platform and wondered what Silvano did with his money. How do I get over there? Across the chasm, Zlia crouched, her face expressionless in the dim light. Silently, she uncoiled a thin line from around her waist. With a practiced snap of her wrist, she whipped the free end at an overhead branch. It wrapped around the limb and held. Like this, she said, and stepped off the branch. The line was invisible in the twilight so it seemed that she glided weightlessly through the air toward him. She landed lightly beside him and handed him the pliable handle on the end of the line. Silvano calls it Tarzaning. It's a joke. Her smile transformed her face away a shaft of sun transformed a blossom from dull crimson to a blazing scarlet. Her face was beautiful. Unable to take his eyes away from her smile, Joaquin grasped the handle. Fear was about to seize him, freeze him. It occurred to him in a blinding flash of revelation that never once had his flesh really been at risk, that even when the soldiers had burst into the hut, he had known that it was just another of his father's games, and that he was safe. Joaquin clenched his teeth and leapt from the limb. The dizzy rush of motion made him gasp, intoxicated him with the rush of flying and risk. Then the far limb jolted his feet, and he stumbled forward, seized by the instant of terror before his knees banged the platform. The mat of woven leaves gave beneath his weight, bouncing so that a box tumbled from the stack. The corner hit his wrist, and he sat up slowly, rubbing it. Slea leapt after him, and with a single tug, freed the line. 
Joaquin shivered as the thin coils fell to the platform. It only comes loose at my touch, not yours. She was laughing at him as she coiled it up. It is made of smart fiber, Silvano says. He gave it to me. He says he gives me things to hear me laugh. She finished wrapping it around her waist and tucked the end securely into place. She's his lover, Joaquin realized. The images that accompanied that thought were vivid and very disturbing, and he banished them by looking around the canopied space. The little platform was obviously a temporary home for Zlia and Silvano. A rumpled sleeping bag, double-sized, a few dishes, a water jug, and a tiny solar-powered burner made up the furnishings. Joaquin began to assemble his detector. He didn't really expect to find everything intact, but to his surprise, nothing was seriously damaged. There was even juice left in the storage batteries. Silvano must have intervened before the pretend kidnappers could break anything. The frogs told them to take a nap. He almost smiled, getting it finally. Can your frogs really make me sleep? He glanced over his shoulder as he ran a test sequence on the Rothberg inverter. Zlia searched in her hair, then offered a small black frog with neon green spots. Wow. He began to set the units out on the gently swaying platform, testing the floor carefully. I never knew they could do that. Frogs, I mean. They are all gifts from Silvano. The sadness was back in her voice. He sells their sweat so that some day he may buy my eggs. What? Hands full of brightly colored leads, he blinked at her. What eggs? I should feed you. Silvano said so. And she left from the branch, arrowing outward on a trajectory that left Joaquin doubting gravity. He shrugged and went back to assembling and testing his apparatus, trying not to think about her. Everything worked, but some of the software involved was temperamental and needed persuading. It wasn't until he found himself squinting at the screen that he realized it was getting dark. His watch was missing, but the first patter of drops confirmed that this wasn't sunset. The afternoon rains. In the hut with its umbrella generator, it hadn't mattered. He scrambled to his feet, spreading his body ineffectively over the stacked instruments. The patter increased to a sudden roar above his head. Water began to drip onto the roof of leaves above him, and the woven branches that walled the platform shook as a gust of wind found its way down into the canopy. The expected downpour didn't happen, although the drips came faster and faster, merging into trickling cascades in places. The roof, no generated field, just leaves, bark, and twigs, didn't leak. His panic subsiding slowly, Joaquin squatted beside his equipment, watching the rainforest channel the water neatly into leaves, crevices, whirls of petals. A clump of fat red blossoms bloomed at the edge of the platform. The curled waxy leaves had filled like tubular goblets. Crystal water ran over and trickled down onto the clumps of the gray-green moss that grew at the base. The frogs will lay their eggs in the water in the leaves and hollow stems, Zlia appeared beside him. Listen, hear them singing? You can hear the new voices. Ten rains ago there were too few to hear. They are growing. Her face was full of a clear, unadulterated joy, like a child's joy, uncomplicated by conditions or confusions. Rain beaded her dark hair like bits of diamond, and she shook herself like a dog, spattering Joaquin with the warm water. He yelped, and she laughed again. Here, she handed him a pear-shaped green fruit. These grow on a plantation tree. They only want the sap. They don't care what grows up here, so the trees suit themselves. 
Joaquin took a cautious bite. The skin was leathery, not crisp like the skin of a tree-grown apples that his father always kept in a bowl on his desk. It was soft, and so was the flesh of the fruit, which was sweet, with a not unpleasant musky taste. He realized he was starving, wolfed the fruit in huge mouthfuls, so that sticky juice ran down his chin and dripped onto his chest. Zlia laughed and handed him some of the small yellow fruits that he had seen when he waked. They were sweet enough to make him dizzy. The rain had stopped by the time he wiped his sticky hands on wet leaves and scrubbed his face with his damp shirt. "'Are you going to turn it on?' Zlia had wandered over to his equipment, was randomly touching screens, readouts, leads, with her long, clawed fingers. "'Are you going to look at the ghosts?' "'What ghosts?' He lifted her hands gently away from a touchscreen. "'You can mess things up, okay?' His brain had to search for words that would convey that warning. "'The ghosts from the other worlds.' She put her hands behind her back like an admonished child. "'The ones who fall through our world. I want to see them.' "'They're not ghosts.' He blinked down into her elfin, childlike face. "'They're jumpers, real people like us, only from a universe a few nanoseconds ahead of ours. "'They have left their lives behind. They are ghosts,' she nodded. "'Show me.' I have to set up my net first. It had taken him two days to suspend the hair-fine fabric of the censer in the dead land beyond the hut. Once someone had maybe grown a garden there. Now the plantation sprayed the ground every year with herbicides so that undesirable wild crosses from the genin trees wouldn't take hold and go to seed. The dead ochre soil had looked like a painted floor. It's going to take some time, he said, doubtfully, staring out at the interlaced branches and gray trunks of the canopy world. Everything gleamed with moisture, and wisps of vapor floated among the leaves. If I string it between branches, will animals tear it down? You know, uh, monkeys or birds or something? There are none here. Celia's eyes gleamed with the green light and the filtered sunset. There is nothing here that is not important to the trees or the plantation. The plantation has no need of monkeys or birds. The trees like the insects, and the plantation scientists have never been able to make insects live or die the way they wish, so they let the frogs remain, and the snakes to keep the frogs from becoming too many, although I kill the snakes. She flashed a quick grin and then frowned. The frogs and the snakes will not harm your nets, will they? I don't know. I don't know. He began to unpack the spare sensor net. Savanna must have left his main net behind when he had loaded Joaquin's equipment. I don't know how I'm going to spread this out. He eyed the huge limbs that formed the floor of this green world, the curtain of lianas and flowering vines that were all strung together. I'll probably fall and break my neck. It will just prove father right, but the moment he stops babysitting me, I'll go and kill my precious self. Is it a square? A circle? Does it need to lie level among the trees, or can it be uneven? She reached for the carefully bundled fibers with her long-fingered hand and sniffed at it. The thicker strand is the edge, no? Yes. He kept expecting her to think like a child or some kind of half-witted primitive. He still thought of her as an intelligent animal, and his cheeks heated at that realization. It's in the shape of uh, a hexagon. He sketched the shape for her and showed her how to open the folds without entangling them. 
Those are the connects for the leads. I've only got about 10 meters of leads, so it has to be close to the platform, I guess. Ha! She tucked the folded net into the waist of her shorts and leapt from the edge of the platform, arm stretched to snag a slender liana. The vine tore loose from some of its supports so that she dropped three meters as she swung. Twigs and leaves showered down, and Joaquin stopped breathing until her hand closed around a small branch. She used that one to swing herself higher, and then pushed off from a thicker limb to do the liana thing all over again. Tarzaning. It was scary as hell to watch. Apparently satisfied with her location, she clung to a swaying limb with her feet while she attached the net to a lower branch. Her long brown toes, curled like fingers around the branch, jarred him. She looked more monkey than human like that, but as she unfurled his net into a perfectly level hexagon, he stopped noticing. It was dark before he plugged the leads from the net into his softly humming system. The power indicator was low, but he should have enough battery for tonight. Worry about the solar panels in the morning. We powered up the net and started as Leah gleaned over his shoulder. What will they look like? she whispered. The ghosts. They're not ghosts. You don't need to whisper, yet you can't scare them away. But he was whispering, too. You won't really see them. They're not really here like you and I are here. The machines will detect their passage through our universe, that's all. The computer will create an artificial image from the input. What if they do not come? I'll keep listening until they do, he shrugged. Chenko reported that the concentration of dark matter is higher in this region than anywhere else in the world. He didn't know why. Of course they come here. Her eyes shone like a cat's eyes in the dark. This is a good place to hide. It is the only place left, Silvano says. He may be right, she shrugged. I have never left here. Yeah, Joaquin stared at the blank monitor screen where the image of the jumpers would appear. Perhaps it was the only place left to hide. Watching your aliens? Silvano stepped into the glow of the monitor. Shit, Joaquin jumped. Do you two go off on sneaking up on people? Do you know what the penalty is for trespassing on plantation property? Silvano's tone was cold. A couple of bullets. Then your fertilizer for the trees. You want your two weeks? You better practice your sneaking, boy. You talked to him, didn't you? Joaquin looked away from the blank screen, struggling with outrage and a sense of futility. You can always hear it in someone's voice when they've talked to father. Fear, he thought. The sound of fear. You promised me two weeks. You have it. Silvano's tone was surly as he sat down across from Joaquin. I told him I'd deliver you myself. Hell, kid, I drive a good bargain. Been doing it for years. Greed, Joaquin thought. That was always the reason. He was a pot of gold, a cash cow, a dream of a big house, servants, a soft life. You're wrong, he said softly. I'm sorry. I would have liked to have the two weeks. Don't worry. We've lived in the plantation's lap for years, and they don't even know we exist. Nobody's going to find us after all this time. You're safe. You know, your old man didn't seem uh, very surprised to hear from me, or very worried. Silvano fished a plastic bottle from the sack hanging from one of the platform supports. What's this, some kind of elaborate game of hide-and-seek you two play? You may be right, Joaquin laughed softly. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I think that's it exactly. Joaquin stared at the uncooperative screen. Maybe that's the whole issue here. Escape, like the jumpers, only I'm not very good at it. 
Here, Silvana passed him the bottle. Joaquin sniffed and wrinkled his nose, some kind of cruelly distilled alcohol. Abruptly, he tilted the plastic bottle and tried a small swallow, choked and coughed as the raw liquor burned his throat. Silvano laughed and took the bottle back. Tilted it, his throat was working as it swallowed. You gonna watch that screen all night? He wiped his mouth and replaced the bottle in the sack. I don't really need to sit here at all. The system would record any disturbances. He heard Silvano rummaging around and the soft crunch of teeth biting into fruit. So what kind of deal did you get? He looked upward, hoping for the impersonal stars, but of course the canopy hid them. A nice, fat, untraceable cash card? I got what I wanted. I'm surprised, actually. Silvano had moved into the monitor's glow again. It had turned his skin a dead gray color as he wiped his mouth on his sleeve. Who's your old man, a broker for illegal neurochemistry? He's one of the very few people who gently and invisibly direct the economy and political course of the entire planet. You'd be amazed at what you can do by opening a factory here, electing a mayor in some godforsaken village there, or driving down the price of soybeans a continent away. Tip over the right domino and you control the world, and nobody ever knows. He shrugged, expecting disbelief, because no one believed anything that wasn't in the media six times a day. Amador Pereira. Silvano said softly. Sweet Jesus, you're his son. His laugh was low and bitter. You told me your damn name. I guess I'm just getting senile after all. He was going to throw Joaquin out, haul him off in the hover and dump him. You could hear it in his voice like the whisper of frost forming on a freezing night. Don't, Joaquin leaned forward. I'm so close. I just need one good recording to dump to the net, and I've finally got all the bugs in the setup worked out. If I can get it uploaded onto the net, he won't ever be able to delete every mention of it, no matter how hard he tries. He won't give me another chance to do this. I don't get it, Silvana looked at him, eyes hooded. If nobody cares about this, then why does he? You don't get it. I just need the two weeks. He was begging and didn't care. Let me stay here, please. Silvana was staring at him, his expression unreadable in the glow of the empty monitor. He let his breath out slowly. It's too late to regret, I guess. Fine, you can stay. He rose to his feet, vanished into the darkness. He is afraid, Celia breathed into Joaquin's ear. This time he didn't startle. I warned him, he should have listened to me. Celia touched his cheek lightly. Maybe the ghosts will not come if you watch. Ghosts are shy. I told you, they're, they're not ghosts. Suddenly angry at the blank screen, at Silvano's gift, Joaquin turned his back on the monitor. There are no ghosts, he hissed at her. That's superstition. Everything is a phenomenon. Silvano is a ghost. She lifted her head and smiled a bad smile. I think he died before he came here. Perhaps that is why he wants to so much buy the eggs for me. What uh, eggs are these, anyway? He crossed his arms, refusing to look at the monitor. An alarm would sound if anything fell through the net. New frog eggs? My eggs, she tilted her head, so that there will be more like me. Others? He leaned forward, the monitor forgotten. You, you mean you're the only one? She shrugged, her fingers in her massive hair. Once upon a time, Silvano says that my grandparents worked for the plantation. 
they harvested the special fruits that the trees produced. They are better than machines. Then the engineers discovered that the trees could give more if they harvested what they needed from the sap. She lowered her hand. Then the World Council passed the law that no one could be like us. She looked away. The plantation people one day killed my grandparents and all of the others, except for a few, like my mother, who escaped. I was a baby. I am the last, since my mother fell and died. A tiny frog sat in the middle of her palm. It wouldn't have been her real mother, Joaquin thought. She'd been crafted in a lab, started in a petri dish. But maybe mother went beyond womb and genes. He looked at the frog inside her palm. It was sky blue with a scarlet belly and throat. It stared up unblinking at Joaquin as Leah reached for his hand and placed it gently, firmly, down on the frog. It squirmed a little, cool and slick beneath his palm. He tried to pull away, wondering what chemical it was secreting onto his skin, but Zlia had him by the wrist. And then suddenly the shadows were brightening, as if the sun had risen. Silvano did not buy the eggs for this one. This one happened on its own. Zlia's voice came from far away. He wishes to freeze it for the engineers, but I wish it to lay its own eggs, hatch its own babies. He barely noticed her words. He was standing on a slender limb that swayed with the subtle pulse of the enormous tree, utterly relaxed, poised between wind and sway and gravity, poised on a peak of utter rightness. A sense of balance filled him, utterly sensual, unity of muscle and tree flesh and the tug of the earth. All were forces, and if you brought them into perfect unity, you could fly. Muscles flexing, he pushed off, falling, flying, surfing down that slope of air, self, earth, riding it like you'd ride a wave. As if in slow motion, a limb slid by overhead. He reached up, caught it, shifted that balance in his trajectory slightly, surfed a new wave, reached for another branch. And suddenly he was looking at himself, marveling at the broad planes of this stranger self's face. I'm feeling your thoughts, he said, and lifted his hand from the frog. It crouched on her palm, its throat pulsing. How does it do that? he breathed, still dizzy with the ecstasy of his flight through the trees. That's what it's like? She nodded, her eyes shining. Full of echoes, of her joy, that perfect balance with earth, air, and self, he leaned down and kissed her. Her lips were soft, and she rubbed her smooth cheek slowly, gently against his face. Their kiss deepened, and she arched against him, reaching up to stroke his face. Her claws traced a delicate line across his jaw, and Joaquin recoiled, euphoria shedding like the mist of the hot sun, seeing her inhuman proportions, her prehensile toes, the gleam of frogs in her thick hair. Ah, uh, I'm sorry. He looked away, ashamed. She shrugged, tucked the blue frog tenderly into her hair once more. Behind him, the monitor beeped slowly and insistently. Joaquim spun around, his heart hammering. On screen, a faint shadow twisted. A jumper. His brain had gone numb, but his fingers moved on their own, focusing the image, enhancing it. The fluctuating patch of gray began to shrink, taking on a sharper silhouette. It could almost be human, that figure. It shimmered and twisted for another handful of seconds, then it faded and vanished. 
it was falling through another universe on its journey. Joaquin blinked and became aware that he was alone. Zlia? he whispered. She stood on the very edge of the platform facing his net, looking for her ghosts. She looked at him, her cat eyes burning with green fire in the darkness. I saw it, she whispered, and leaped out into the darkness. Zlia! But she was gone, with only the rustle of foliage and the creak of a limb to mark her passage. And then the insect noise swallowed even that. He wondered what she had seen in the darkness. Not his jumper, certainly. Only his machines could see that. Perhaps she had merely seen herself through his eyes. Joaquin stumbled back to his monitor to crouch like a supplicant in front of his blank eye for the remainder of the night. Joaquin woke up in the front of the monitor. In the green dawn light, its screen looked dull and gray, and his neck ached like hell. The platform was empty. Three of the green fruits lay on a broad, waxy leaf. No Zlia, no Silvano. He had his jumpers. Joaquin touched the power switch, but nothing happened. Oh, yeah, he needed to get the solar panels up where they could generate some juice. No rush. He had what he needed. Proof. He closed his eyes, hugging himself, seeing those jumpers twisting, falling through space. You can't take that away from me, father. Insects hummed in the leaves of this canopy world that had been allowed to evolve on its own because it didn't matter to the plantation managers. Joaquin stood and walked to the edge of the platform, squinting into the soft green shadows, searching for his Leah. Spotted her in the distance, Tarzaning between trees. He smiled, watching her. She was at play. Diving from on high, plummeting in free fall, she reached, touched, pushed off, changed her trajectory and velocity, snagged a vine, swung hard and fast upward, looped up and over into an arc, like a childhood memory of some fantastic roller coaster, vanishing briefly into the upper canopy. Up into the blue sky? To see the sun that must be up there above the leaves? She plummeted down so perfectly balanced, not in control, in balance. Control was not part of her world. It came to Joaquin in a blinding revelation. She had no need to control anything. Who else in the universe could ignore control? You either controlled or were controlled. Hide and seek, Silvano had called it. Joaquin laughed, and the bitter edge of that note, like shattered glass, seemed to wing across the thick green air between him and Zlia to sever her wings. She dropped, snagged a liana, and Tarzaned her way back over to the platform. I left you fruit. She smiled at him, and the sheer light of her smile warmed him. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. He understood suddenly how Silvano could be her lover. The claws didn't matter. I saw your ghosts, she said. I am so happy. Me too. It took him a moment to realize that these two were separate thoughts. Why are you happy? Savannah went to get my eggs this morning. Her eyes sparkled with emerald flecks, glints of sunlight on forest pools. Oh, Joaquin, they will grow, I know it. I will take such good care of them. It was the first time she had ever used his name. What do you mean? His brain was slow, caught up even as the words left his mouth. Oh, God. Where did he go? Her blink of wary incomprehension enraged him, and he fought it down. Zlia, where did Silvana go to collect your eggs? It's important to take me there. He spoke to her wary recoil, desperate. He doesn't understand my father. It's a trap. If I don't help him, he'll lose your eggs, Zlia. I want you to have them. These last words were utter truth. Maybe she heard that, because without another word, she unwound the line from her waist, whipped it around a branch overhead, and leaped lightly up against his chest. The touch of her prehensile toes and the prick of her claws as she wrapped her limbs around him didn't bother him now. "'Hold on to it,' she commanded, as he grasped the tough, flexible handle of the line. "'Jump hard!' He did, and they swung outward into space, flying heavily and awkwardly, but flying. They Tarzan through the canopy. He clung to her line with one hand, clutched her hard, lithe body to his with the other, aware of the combined beat of their hearts, the heat of her flesh, the rush of the thick, humid air against his face. She steered, and he pushed off. Didn't look down. Tried not to imagine what he would see if he looked down there. They landed on limbs, spark, and bits of vine showering them, scratching his face, leaped again and again. His arms ached, his shoulders burned like fire, but still they leaped, swung, scrambled for balance on a new perch. He was too tired to be afraid any longer. The sight of the collection tubes and mains so many meters below had no meaning any more. When he lost his grip and fell, he would feel no fear at all. Another escape, he thought numbly more permanent, maybe, than that of the jumpers. Then she landed them on a big limb, thicker than most. It jutted into daylight, sun, empty space. End of the rainforest, end of the plantation. Beyond the trees lay the sear, ochre-colored, savaged earth of the soil that the plantation had no use for. You couldn't even see the hoses that carried the collected harvest from the trees to the processing and packaging plant. They were buried underground to protect them from the UV and sabotage. Ragged weeds sprouted from sterilized reddish soil, struggling for existence. A bright steel and ceramic pumping station hulked in the center of the clear space. A mud-covered truck was parked beside it, and three men lounged against it. Two of them wore plantation uniforms. The man in the center was Silvano. 
he sagged against the side of the truck with his hands cuffed behind him. Even from this distance, Joaquin could see that he had been beaten. Blood gleamed wet and red on his face, and he would have fallen if the man beside him hadn't been holding him upright. Zlia whimpered and tensed. No, Joaquin grabbed her arm, digging his nails into her flesh. I can fix this. Uh, maybe. You stay here. Here. He shook her, frightened by the intent in her muscles. Zlia, they'll kill him if you go out there. Do you understand? She looked at him at last, and the terror in her eyes was utterly human. Yes, she whispered. Joaquin looked down at the ground, twenty-plus meters away. Without a word, Zlia wound the smart line around a limb. He would have to drop the last five meters or so. Joaquin wondered if that would break bones, was already reaching for the line. He slid down too fast, unable to slow himself, the supple line burning a streak of fire across his palms. He let go, fell, breath jolting out of his lungs, gasping for air as he struggled to his feet. One of the plantation guards glanced his way, and Joaquin shrank back behind the tree, but the man's glance slid past, as if it couldn't penetrate beyond that boundary of shadow and sun. He wondered what they were waiting for. The sound of a distant engine seemed to answer him, and one of the guards spoke a few words, his voice a little too loud and formal as if he was speaking over a comlink. Silvano hunched his shoulders and lifted his head defiantly. Whatever he said annoyed the guard beside him, because he stepped in front of Silvano and backhanded him brutally. Silvano reeled against the truck and slid to his knees, hunched as if expecting more blows. The guard drew a small, ugly gun. A streak of movement shattered the barrier of shadow and light. Zlia burst from the forest, running. No! Joaquin yelled, but it was too late. The guard swiveled to face her, weapons coming up. Zlia didn't belong on their ground. She moved awkwardly on her long-toed feet, clumsily, a crippled mistake where she should have been grace itself. Light glinted on the blade in her hand as she launched herself at the guard who stood over Silvano. Without hurry, almost lazily, the other guard took aim. No, don't! Joaquin dashed through the invisible barrier of light, dazzled by the sun, stumbling over the rough ground, too slow, too late. For an instant, they all seemed suspended, Zlia, the guard, and Joaquin, in the same perfect balance that he had experienced as they shared her frog. Then the weapon made a tiny spitting noise, and Zlia's limbs went slack at the middle of her leap. No! Joaquin screamed, but she was already tumbling, her sprawling limbs slack and ugly, too long and too thin. Silvano gave a cry like a wounded animal, scrambling on his knees to her through the dust. Joaquin reached them, not caring if the guards fired or not, falling to the ground beside Silvano, skin shredding from his knees as he scooped her into his lap. She was so light, like a child, and her bones felt as fragile as a bird's. One hand lifted, fluttering at a tangle of hair around her face. Her eyes were open, and she smiled gently at something in the air beyond Joaquin. Look, she whispered, and her hand closed on his, the sky blue and the scarlet frogs squirming between them. Her stare compelled him, and he looked out at the empty, baking ground, and saw a shadow, a figure that might be human, twisting slowly as it slid through the hot, thick air on a diagonal down and through the sun-baked clay, transparent, ethereal, it vanished slowly into the earth. A jumper. 
her hand went slack, and Joaquin became aware of Silvano weeping slowly. He touched her throat, feeling for a pulse, then laid her gently on the ground. And from the corner of his eye he thought he saw another shape drifting, falling slowly through the heat and light and earth. Maybe they were ghosts after all. A car pulled up beside him, and its shadow fell over Joaquin as he pulled off his tunic and covered her from the alien face of the sun. A door opened and closed. My, this is a dramatic scene. The tone was male, controlled, mildly amused. My timing was perfect, it seems. I brought your illegal ova, Silvano. Joaquin got slowly to his feet. Father, he raised his head, found himself eye to eye with his father's expensive youth. I am surprised. You have never come after me in person before. Well, you will never really lost before. His father's tone was still amused, but a brief darkness glimmered in his eyes. I'm pleased that you chose to deliver my son now instead of sticking to your ridiculous demand for time. Here. He stepped across the sterile dust in his handmade real leather shoes, laid a small enviro container on the ground beside Zalia's body. There are four here, two male, two female, as I promised. I am relieved that you have been found intact. He was speaking to Joaquin, never looked at Silvano. Shall we go? I succeeded, Joaquin looked up into his father's face. You're too late, father. Beside his knee, the blue and scarlet frog twitched, crushed and dying. Joaquin scooped it up, cool and moist in his sweaty palm. Surging to his feet, he grabbed his father's hand, and before he could jerk it away, he pressed the frog's mangled body against it. For an instant, he was seeing himself, young with a youth that could not be bought, and with a world of possibility that had not yet lost its wonder. Then his father jerked his hand from Joaquin's, knocking the frog to the ground, grinding it into a smear of guts and blue skin in the dust. Disgusting! He wiped his hand on his pants, but he did not look at his son. Hide and seek, Joaquin looked down at Silvana with pity. I told you punishment rarely has to do with money. I warned you. He reached behind Silvano, freed his bound hands, then picked up the container full of engineered eggs, created from Zlia's DNA. You'll be safe, I promise you. He pushed the container into Silvano's lax hands. Do you understand? He addressed the guards. If anything happens to this man, we will punish you. He smiled at them both, watched their eyes flick from himself to his father, then back to him, before they slid down and away, and they nodded. It won't matter who actually did the harm, he said gently. You are responsible. They tensed. They would protect Silvano with their lives now. Joaquin faced his father. Let's go back. It's time I start to learn the business, isn't it? Eh, about time, yes, his father smiled, but with a hint of uncertainty showed in his eyes. What about your precious project? We'll have to submit your results to experts, you know, a jury journal, perhaps. No expert would verify these results. His father would see to that. That was the old game of hide-and-seek. But he was finished playing. His father simply didn't realize it yet. I'm leaving the equipment here. You can sell it for scrap, Silvano. He looked down at the man bent over Zlia's body, pitying him, but feeling also envy. You don't know what you had, he thought, but you at least had it for a while. He wouldn't be lonely anyway. He would have Zlia's sons and daughters to raise. Maybe this time he'd understand. Let's go, father. He smiled at his father's wary bemusement. I have a lot to catch up on. 
Oh, I agree, his father smiled, but the uncertainty in his eyes sharpened a hair. Silvano had scooped Slea's body into his arms, stood unsteadily, tears gleaming on his battered face, the eggs in their container balanced on Zlia's flat abdomen above her womb. You can't run away from yourself. There is no escape in that direction. For an instant, Silvano met Joaquin's eyes. Then he lowered his head and limped across the scorched clay, back to the shadows of his world. Zlia had understood, Joaquin thought. You simply make your own rules. You simply fly, like the jumpers, not escaping anything, just not part of this universe. Let's go, he said, and turned towards his father's vehicle. Without a word, his father followed him. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mary Rosenblum. Mary, thank you so much. Look out for some more work by Mary. And Randall, thank you again. What a cracking narration. Excellent. Thank you so much. There you go. Next up, our good friend, Mr. JJ Campanella, with his science news for the month of January. Jim, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this January 2011 science news update. Happy New Year. I'm your host for this evening's off-kilter distractions, Jim Campanella. Let us begin. The first story of the night was actually the result of an interview that I had with Jesse Willis of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Audio Podcast. Uh, You can actually listen to this. It is online now if you're curious and want to hear more. (laughs) But uh, Jesse and I were discussing one of my early podcast stories about human beings being genetically programmed to find babies cute because of their round heads and big eyes. This is something actually well-known to artists. Even Walt Disney employed it when he retooled Mickey Mouse from his Steamboat Willie days. Compare the drawings of Steamboat Willie to modern Mickey. You will notice the infantilization of Mickey's features. Stephen Jay Gould, the famous evolutionary biologist, describes these changes in Mickey better than I ever could. Now, bear with me. This is a little long, but a fascinating quote from his article in the Journal of Natural History from about 20 years ago. Quote, the characteristic changes of form during human growth have inspired a substantial biological literature. Since the head end of an embryo differentiates first and grows more rapidly in utero than the foot end, a newborn child possesses a relatively large head attached to a medium-sized body with diminutive legs and feet. This gradient is reversed through growth as legs and feet overtake the front end. Heads continue to grow, but so much more slowly than the rest of the body that relative head size decreases. In addition, a suite of changes pervades the head itself during human growth. The brain grows very slowly after age three, and the bulbous cranium of a young child gives way to the more slanted, lower-browed configuration of adulthood. The eyes scarcely grow at all, and relative eye size declines precipitously. But the jaw gets bigger and bigger. Children, compared with adults, have larger heads and eyes, smaller jaws, a more prominent bulging cranium, and smaller, pudgier legs and feet. Adult heads are altogether more apish, I'm sorry to say. Mickey, however, has traveled this ontogenetic pathway in reverse during his 50 years among us. He has assumed an ever more childlike appearance as the ratty character of Steamboat Willie became the cute and inoffensive host of a magic kingdom. The Disney artist transformed Mickey in clever silence, often using suggestive devices that mimic nature's own changes by different routes. 
To give him the shorter and pudgier legs of youth, they lowered his pants line and covered his spindly legs with a baggy outfit. His arms and legs also thickened substantially and acquired joints for a floppier appearance. His head grew relatively larger and its features more youthful. The length of Mickey's snout has not altered, but decreasing protrusion is more subtly suggested by a pronounced thickening. Mickey's eye has grown in two modes, first by a major discontinuous evolutionary shift as the entire eye of ancestral Mickey became the pupil of his descendants, and second by a gradual increase thereafter. Unquote. I base my statement about babies to Jesse on the work of the famous psychologist and behaviorist Dr. Conrad Lorenz. Lorenz, in several articles, argues that humans use the characteristic differences in form between babies and adults as important behavioral cues. He believes that the features of juvenility trigger, quote, innate releasing mechanisms, unquote, for affection and nurturing in adult humans. When we see a living creature with babyish features, we feel an automatic surge of disarming tenderness. The adaptive value of this response can scarcely be questioned, for we have to take care of our babies after all. Lorenz, by the way, lists among his releasers the very features of babyhood that Disney affixed progressively to Mickey. Quote, a relatively large head, predominance of the brain capsule, large and low-lying eyes, bulging cheek regions, short and thick extremities, a springy elastic consistency, and clumsy movements, unquote. Okay, so is there a point to all this? Well, late in the conversation that I had with Jesse, we got into an odd argument which basically was a question about outliers in human behavior. Jesse wanted to know if Lorenz's hypothesis is true, then why is there still infanticide in the world? Why do we hear about people killing babies and small children? Well, my immediate response was that those baby killers had a screw loose. They were psychologically disturbed and were overriding Lorenz's releasers. This is actually the same argument that the Roman Catholic Church now uses to explain why people who commit suicide probably do not suffer eternal damnation. It is no longer as you have to be deeply disturbed and not in your right mind to actually kill yourself. At any rate, I didn't ask, but I bet that Jesse is not a parent. A parent would never have asked me that question. Anybody who has had to deal with a screaming baby for hours at a time especially in the AM, will tell you that by the end of four or five hours of continuous screaming, even the most loving parent will be considering homicide, if not suicide. Another two possibilities for the existence of infanticide would be the following. First, Lorenz argued that the recognition and response to the baby releasers was innate and hardwired. Let us imagine someone who is a mutant who does not have a brain which is hardwired for those releasers. A quote-unquote wild-type person would simply live with the four hours of baby screaming and probably take to the whiskey bottle after the child had calmed down. Let us imagine the mutant who has shown little predilection for murder in their life. Perhaps they've been a little cruel to small animals, but that's about it. Their brain is simply wired differently, and what keeps you or I from killing a child because they are cute and helpless simply does not exist in this person's brain. When they, he or she, is exposed to endless hours of crying, they react eventually by trying to end that crying as best they can. Gould suggested that it may not be a hardwired recognition, but a learned process of inculcating an appreciation for acuteness into your brain. Imagine a person who has never been exposed or never learned the psychological lesson. Again, it would lead to the same conclusion. They do not know the releasers because they never learn them. 
Okay, if that does not answer the question, you may want to search out a 2010 article in the journal, and I'm not making this name up. The name of the journal is Trauma, Violence, and Abuse. The article is entitled Infanticide and Neonaticide, a review of 40 years of research literature on incidents and causes by doctors Helen Gavin and Teresa Porter of the University of Huddersfield and Connecticut Hospital, respectively. This review seems to be the best source at the moment of answering a very complicated question. The article reviews and summarizes research, incident statistics, and judicial and clinical outcomes ranging over four decades of work and sets out the various ways in which the prevention of infant murder may come about. You can peruse that paper, but in the end, I suspect that we will never have good explanations of why people commit monstrous acts. And Jesse, they are outside the norm. A majority of humans, the wild type to use the genetic term again, do respond to Lorenz's releasers and do find baby-like creatures cute. I mean, Disney made his fortune on an understanding of this. The second article of the evening is an update on the BEM article from December. You may remember that was the one that seemed to find evidence for precognition. You may also remember that I was more than a bit skeptical and that I suggested that Dr. BEM's statistics seemed to be skewed and a bit hard to accept. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one who did not jump at Ben's data and conclusions. Doctors Eric Jan Wagenmachers, Ruud Wetzels, Denny Borsboom, and Han Vandermoss wrote an article for the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology entitled, Why Psychologists Must Change the Way They Analyze Their Data, The Case of Psy. To say that this group of Danes was disturbed by Bem's article is putting it mildly. Here is a quote from their paper to put it into context. Quote, We think that the answer to the question of whether Psy exists or not is negative, and that the take-home nature of Bem's research is, in fact, of a completely different nature. Instead of revising our beliefs regarding the existence of Psy, Bem's research should instead cause us to revise our beliefs on methodology. The field of psychology currently uses methodological and statistical strategies that are too weak, too malleable, and offer too many opportunities for researchers to befuddle themselves and their peers, unquote. The authors then listed several flaws in Bem's psi experiments in terms of his analytic methodology. First, Bem was confused between exploratory and confirmatory studies. Basically, that means that Bem was doing some basic exploratory research to try to find any evidence for his hypothesis. But upon finding any evidence at all, he decided the evidence was good enough to confirm his hypothesis. As the Danish paper suggests, instead of presenting exploratory findings as confirmatory, one should ideally use a two-step procedure. First, in the absence of strong theory, one can explore the data until one discovers an interesting new hypothesis. But this phase of exploration and discovery needs to be followed by a second phase, one in which the new hypothesis is tested against new data in a confirmatory fashion. The second flaw, Bem did not give sufficient attention to the fact that the probability of the data given the hypothesis does not equal the probability of the hypothesis given the data, something called the fallacy of the transposed conditional by scientists. The interpretation of statistical significant tests is liable to a misconception known as the fallacy of transposed conditional. That means the probability of the data given a hypothesis, such as the probability of somebody being dead given that they were lynched, which is the probability that comes close to 100%, 
is confused with the probability of the hypothesis given the data, such as the probability that someone was lynched given that they are dead, which is a probability that is close to zero. In short, you are assuming that just because being lynched leads to being dead, then all people who are dead must have been lynched. From a scientific standpoint, this is a logical mistake of colossal proportions and the basis of Laplace's principle, which states that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This principle holds that even compelling data may not make a rational agent believe that psi exists. Basically, if psi exists, then to make a rational human believe it, Bem needed to get much stronger data than he did. His lousy, weak, almost believable data is simply not enough given the extraordinary hypothesis he is trying to support. As the Danes say in their paper, quote, Thus, in order to convince scientific critics of an extravagant, controversial claim, one is required to pull out all the stops, even when Bem's experiments had been confirmatory, which they were not, and even if they would have conveyed strong statistical evidence for precognition, which they did not, eight experiments are not enough to convince the skeptic that the known laws of nature have been bent, or more precisely, that these laws were bent only for erotic pictures and only for participants who are extroverts, unquote. Now, the last flaw. Bem applied a statistical test that overstates the evidence against the null hypothesis. The use of that statistical test created an unfortunate tendency to give bad statistical conclusions that are only exacerbated as the number of participants grows larger. As the Dane state, evidence is a relative concept, and it is of limited interest to consider the probability of the data under just a single hypothesis. For example, if you win the lotto, you might be accused of cheating. After all, the probability of winning the lotto is rather small. I mean, this may be true, but this low probability in itself does not constitute evidence. The evidence is assessed only when this low probability is pitted against the much lower probability that you could have somehow obtained the winning number by acquiring advanced knowledge on how to buy the winning ticket. In order to evaluate the strength of the evidence that the data provide for or against precognition, Bem needed to set the null hypothesis against a specific alternative hypothesis and not consider the null hypothesis in isolation by itself. The Danes suggest that Bayesian statistics can achieve this goal using a hypothesis test that computes a weighted likelihood ratio, apparently something that Bem did not do. In the end, the Danes did those statistics that Bem did not. They reanalyzed Bem's data using a default Bayesian t-test and finally show that the evidence for psi is weak to non-existent. Ta-da! They conclude that the best thing that we can learn from Ben's work is that experimental psychologists need to change the way they conduct their experiments and analyze their data, which is something I've been saying for years. I'm often amazed that psychologists actually do take classes in statistics and given some of the things that I've read. Onward and upward... One of my friends and colleagues here at the university is a behavioral biologist and teaches courses specifically having to do with physiology and evolution and their effects on reproductive behavior. It always amazes me how popular his classes on animal sex are, but there are a ton of students who sign up for them. I suspect it is because as humans we are always curious about the reproductive behavior of animals and whether it will give us any insight into our own behavior. This next story reminded me of my colleague when I read it because... It has entirely to do with animal behavior and sex. Dr. Jonathan Pruitt of the University of California, Davis, 
spoke on spider sex at the January 4th annual meeting of the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology. The title of his talk was Early Mock Sex for Spiders Yields Later Benefits for Young Arachnids. Now, what exactly does that mean? Among the Anellocema spiders, which live and spin webs along rivers and under bridges all the way up and down North and South America, females don't develop an opening to their reproductive tract until their final molt. Males mature faster and hang around not quite so mature females, often going through most of the mating routine. They don't actually have sex because A, there's no female opening to do that, and B, the male doesn't load his sex organs with sperm, but performs a courtship display by drumming the female's web with his legs and sex organs. If the female assumes a cooperative posture, he approximates a mating position too. Then he taps her body where the reproductive tract will eventually open. Now remember that female spiders can be quite nasty to their suitors, even during mock sex, so there's still a risk that the male spider will be killed by a potentially cannibalistic female. So the question that Dr. Pruitt raised was, why? Why do this when you risk being killed for no reason at all? Pruitt says that sex that can't possibly produce offspring remains puzzling. To test the idea that such encounters might be more than wishful mistakes on the part of the males, he and Dr. Susan Reichert of the University of Tennessee played matchmaker to some young spider pairs for these near matings. At the same time as setting up a control, they kept other mature individuals isolated. When all the spiders finally developed, they observed actual real matings between males and females. They found that if either spider partner had participated at least once in a round of mock sex, a pair tended to reach the point of real mating faster than two inexperienced spiders did. Pruitt said, the brisk proceeding wasn't a matter of knowing a particular partner, though. Even pretend sex with a different individual tended to hasten the process. Speed should benefit the male by reducing the opportunity for some intruder to dash in and displace him, Pruitt said. Timing matters because the first male will father most of the eggs in a particular egg case. And experienced females typically invested more in those egg cases as measured by weight, the researchers found. The test did not address whether females might find some benefit from this too, but Pruitt speculated that they might. For example, if mock mating turns out to be a sign of a superior male, then a female that rushes to consummate a real pairing reduces her chances of being distracted by some inferior interloper. At any rate, the next story is for anybody out there who is likely to be exposed to chickenpox in the near future. In the January issue of the Journal of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Eugene Shapiro of Yale University School of Medicine and his colleagues examined just how effective the chickenpox vaccine is. And the answer is one of those good news, bad news things. Bad news, the vaccine is not as effective as was thought with single injections. The good news, the vaccine, when injected twice, is actually quite effective long term. The chickenpox shot, available in the U.S. since 1995, has already proved able to prevent the disease in about 80 to 85% of the children who get the single dose. In 2006, the Centers for Disease Control and the American Academy of Pediatrics jointly recommended a two-shot approach, suggesting that children get the doses four to six years apart. A new study by Shapiro supports this revision. Adding another shot increases 
disease prevention by nearly 100%. In a study, Shapiro identified 71 children who had contracted chickenpox between 2006 and 2010, verifying the diagnosis with tests showing viral DNA and skin lesions. The children had attended 28 clinics in Connecticut. The researchers found that five of these 71 children hadn't been vaccinated at all and that 66 of the others had received a single shot. But none of these infected kitties had been vaccinated twice. As a comparison group, none of 140 other children who matched the first group in age and had gone to the same clinics had come down with chickenpox. Of this group, 117 had gotten a single shot, 22 had received two, and one child hadn't been vaccinated at all. The authors calculate that the two-shot regimen was 98.3% effective in preventing chickenpox, although for the life of me, I don't see where that statistic comes from. It seems to me that 100% of the children who got two shots did not get infected. Why 98.3%? I don't get it. That's just very strange. Shapiro notes the recommended four- to six-year separation in the two doses is based on convenience, allowing doctors to give the second shot with other scheduled vaccinations. The second chickenpox vaccine shot can be given as soon as three months after the first dose, he says. I can tell you that adding another shot into the pincushion-like regimen that my children get punctured with regularly will not make them any happier to go to the doctor. But if they can avoid the kind of nasty chicken pox I had when I was a child, then more power to them. The final story of the night is a bit of an update on one from a few months ago. You may remember that I reported a few months back that there was evidence for Neanderthal DNA in humans, suggesting matings between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals many thousands of years ago. There is new information in the December issue of the journal Nature by Dr. David Reich of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Only about a year ago, it was still thought that modern humans spread throughout the world in a single migration out of Africa and in so doing wiped out any genetic traces of other early hominids. This new study, however, suggests that the lineage of modern humans is much more intertwined and complicated than anybody would have thought or predicted. Researchers sequenced the full genome of a girl's ancient finger bone found in a Siberian cave. They concluded that there must have been a closely related sister group of Neanderthals living in Central Asia about 40,000 years ago based on these genetic data. The data also show that like Neanderthals, the mysterious group interbred with modern humans, in this case leaving behind a genetic fingerprint in modern-day Melanesians of Papua New Guinea and Bougainville Island, nearly 10,000 kilometers from where the fossil was found. This group, which the ancient girl's finger represents, is neither Neanderthal nor modern human. Earlier this year, Reich reported sequencing the mitochondrial DNA from the finger bone of the girl, leading the researchers to conclude that the girl belonged to a new group that split from the line leading to modern humans about a million years ago, before the Neanderthal human split about 270,000 to 400,000 years ago. But the mitochondrial DNA, only through the female line, isn't as informative as genomic DNA in the cell's nuclei, so Reich and his colleagues decided to sequence the entire nuclear genome. The team found that the Denisovans, as they have been dubbed after the cave where the finger bone was found, were much more closely related to Neanderthals who had their genomes sequenced earlier this year. And comparing the Denisovan DNA to that of modern-day humans turned up a big surprise. 
DNA samples from people living in Melanesia carried 4 to 6% of the ancient Denisovan genome. Reich says, quote, It's a really amazing observation, and it indicates there was gene flow from Denisovans into modern humans. This Denisovan genetic stamp isn't found in other modern human populations, however, suggesting that there was some sort of unique interbreeding event in Melanesian history, which likely happened after a similar genome mingling between Neanderthals and non-African modern humans. The study is one of the first examples of genetic information defining an entirely new ancient group. While details about the Denisovan girl's life are lacking, her cave may have been a busy place. Artifacts suggest that modern humans and Neanderthals were in close proximity to the region. The researchers also found a hominid tooth in the cave that Reich says is, quote, like nothing we've ever seen before, unquote. Differences in the mitochondrial genome and the tooth DNA led the team to conclude that the tooth didn't belong to the girl, but another Denisovan. The large and unusually shaped tooth is presumed to be an upper molar from an adult. For now, details such as the Denisovan girl's appearance and cultural habits remain a mystery, Reich says. Quote, All we have now is this tooth and this finger bone and this incredibly informative genome. Unquote. After this new group's debut, Reich is hoping that perhaps more Denisovan bones will turn up. Well, we found hobbit-like ancestors. Perhaps the Denisovans are... Elves? Although more likely they sound like orcs from that weird tooth that was found. That's all from me for now. As always, take care, avoid infanticidal chicken poxy spiders, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, thank you so much. And don't forget, all Fact Article contributors, if you want to email them, please, you know, drop us an email or send one direct. We would love to hear from you as well, as, you know, I love to hear from you. But if you want to send Jim a little email, you know, asking him a question, please, by all means, he's, he's more than happy to take emails. And I guess Morgan is as well. So anybody, you know, Amy as well, all love to have emails sent. So please do that. Next up, we're coming on to the final part of Kim Stanley Robinson's Escape from Kathmandu. I've had loads of emails regarding this story. You know, it it, it is a, just a fantastic story. And again, the serials are proven very popular. You know, everyone seems to like them. So let's get straight into the final part of Escape from Kathmandu by Kim Stanley Robinson. It is narrated by a fantastic narrator, Josh Roseman. Do look out for Josh's work. There will be a link on the front of the website. Please pop over there and say hello to Josh. Previously on Starship Sofa. In Nepal, months ago, Nathan Howe sent a letter about a scientific expedition to his friend George Fredericks, hoping Freds, as he calls him, could help keep Nathan's former colleagues from abducting the Yeti they found in the mountains. However, the letter is read by George Ferguson, an expedition leader living in Nepal, and after meeting up with Nathan and Freds, George hatches a plan to rescue the Yeti from Phil Adrakian, one of the other scientists and Nathan's chief rival for the affections of Sarah Hornsby, an ornithologist who was part of that first team and who is also back in Nepal. George, Nathan, Freds, and Sarah infiltrate the hotel where Adrakian and his colleagues are staying, the very same hotel where former President Jimmy Carter happens to have a room. They disguise the Yeti, who they call Buddha, and sneak him out, only to run into the Carters and their Secret Service detachment. 
Just before they escape, a Drakian sees them with Buddha and gives chase. As Sarah, Nathan, and Fred's run interference, George and Buddha hop on a bicycle in an attempt to escape a Drakian through the busy streets of Kathmandu. Thanks to Buddha's strength and George's self-proclaimed great timing, they make it back to George's hotel and hole up, and George hatches a second plan. Buddha's escape from Kathmandu, back to his home in the mountains. And now, the conclusion. 12. I spent most of the next day through the looking glass, inside the big headquarters of the Royal Nepal Airline Corporation, getting four tickets for the following day's flight to Jay. Tough work, even though, as far as I could tell, the plane wasn't even close to sold out. Jay wasn't near any trekking routes, and it wasn't a popular destination, but that doesn't mean anything at Arnak. Their purpose as a company, as far as I can tell, is not so much to fly people places as it is to make lists. Waiting lists. I would call it their secret agenda. Only it's no secret. Patience, a very low-keyed pig-headedness, and lots of backsheesh are the keys to getting from the lists to the status of ticket holder. I managed it, and in one day, too. So I was pleased, but I called my friend Bill, who works in one of the city's travel agencies, to establish a little backup plan. He's good at those, having a lot of experience with Arnak. Then I completed the rest of my purchases at my favorite climbing outfitters in Tamel. The owner... A Tibetan woman put down her copy of the far pavilions and stopped doing her arm aerobics and got me all the clothes I asked for in all the right colors. The only thing she couldn't find me was another Dodgers cap, but I got a dark blue Adam baseball cap instead. I pointed at it. What is this Adam, anyway? Because there were caps and jackets all over Nepal with that one word on them. Was it a company? And if so, what kind? She shrugged. Nobody knows. Extensive advertising for an unknown product, yet another great mystery of Nepal. I stuffed my new belongings into my backpack and left. I was on my way home when I noticed someone dodging around in the crowd behind me. Just a glance and I spotted him nipping into a newsstand, Phil Adrakian. Now I couldn't go home. Not straight home. So I went to the Kathmandu guesthouse next door and told one of the snooty clerks there that Jimmy Carter would be visiting in ten minutes and his secretary would be arriving very shortly. I walked through the pretty garden that gives the guesthouse so many of its pretensions and hopped over a low spot in the back wall, down an empty garbage alley around the corner over another wall and past the lodge pleasant or pheasant into the star's courtyard. I was feeling pretty covert and all when I saw one of the Carter's Secret Service men standing in front of the tantric used bookstore. Since I was already in the courtyard... I went ahead and hurried on up to my room. 13. I think they must have followed you here, I told our little group. I suppose they might think we really were trying a kidnapping yesterday. Nathan groaned. A Drakian probably convinced them were part of that group that bombed the Hotel Annapurna this summer. That should reassure them, I said. When that happened, the opposition group immediately wrote to the king and told him they were suspending all operations against the government until the criminal element among them was captured by the authorities. Hindu gorillas are heavy, aren't they? said Freds. Anyway, I concluded, all this means is that we have a damn good reason to put our plan into effect. Freds, are you sure you're up for it? Sure, I'm sure. It sounds like fun. All right. We'd better all stay here tonight just in case. I'll cook up some chicken soup. So we had a Spartan meal of curried chicken soup, Nebico wafers, Toblerone white chocolate, jelly beans, and iodinated tang. When Nathan saw the way Buddha went for the jelly beans, he shook his head. We've got to get him out of here fast. When we settled down, Sarah took the bed, and Buddha immediately joined her with a completely innocent look in his eye, as if to say, Who, me? This is just where I sleep, right? I could see Nathan was a bit suspicious of this, worried about the old Fay Ray complex, maybe, and in fact he curled up on the foot of the bed. 
I assumed there weren't any problems. Freds and I threw down the mildewed foam pads I owned and lay down on the floor. Don't you think Buddha is sure to get freaked by the flight tomorrow? Sarah asked when the lights were off. Nothing seemed to bother him much so far, I said. But I wondered. I don't like flying myself. Yeah, but this isn't remotely like anything he's ever done before. Standing on a high ridge is kind of like flying. Compared to our bike ride, it should be easy. I'm not so sure, Nathan said, worried again. Sarah may be right. Flying can be upsetting even for people who know what it is. That's usually the heart of the problem, I said with feeling. Fred's cut through the debate. I say we should get him stoned before the flight, get a hash pipe going good, and just get him wasted. You're crazy, Nathan said. That'd just freak him out more. Nah, he wouldn't know what to make of it, Sarah said. Oh, yeah? Fred's propped himself up on one arm. You really think those yetis have lived all this time up there among all those pot plants and haven't figured them out? No way. In fact, that's probably why no one ever sees them. Man, the pot plants up there are as big as pine trees. They probably use the buds for food. Nathan and Sarah doubted that, and they further doubted that we should do any experimenting about it at such a crucial time. You got any hash? I asked Fred's with interest. Nope. Before this Amadablam climb came through, I was going to fly to Malaysia to join a jungle mountain expedition that Doug Scott put together, you know. So I got rid of it all. I mean, do you fly drugs into Malaysia is not one of the harder questions on the IQ test, you know. In fact, I had too much to smoke in the time I had left, and when I was hiking down from Namchi to Lukla, I was loading my pipe and dropped this chunk on the ground. A really monster chunk, about 10 grams, and I just left it there. Just left it lying on the ground. I have always wanted to do that. Anyway, I'm out. I could fix that in about 15 minutes down the street if you want me to. No, no, that's okay. I could already hear the steady breathing of Buddha, fast asleep above me. He'll be more relaxed than any of us tomorrow. And that was true. 14. We got up before dawn, and Fred's dressed in the clothes that Buddha had worn the day before. We pasted some swatches of Buddha's back fur onto Fred's face to serve as a beard. We even had some of the russet fur taped to the inside of the Dodger's cap so it hung down behind. With mittens on and a big pair of snow boots, he was covered. Slipped the shades onto his nose, and he looked at least as weird as Buddha had in the Sheraton. Fred's walked around the room a bit, trying it out. Buddha watched him with that surprised look, and it cracked Fred's up. I look like your long-lost brother, hey, Buddha? Nathan collapsed on the bed despondently. This just isn't going to work. That's what you said last time, I objected. Exactly. And look what happened. You call that working? Are you telling me that things worked yesterday? Well, it depends on what you mean when you say worked. I mean, here we are, right? I began packing my gear. Relax, Nathan. I put a hand on his shoulder, and Sarah put both her hands on his other shoulder. He bucked up a bit, and I smiled at Sarah. That woman was tough. She had saved our ass at the Sheraton, and she kept her nerve well during the waiting, too. I wouldn't have minded asking her on a long trek into the Himal myself, really, and she saw that and gave me a brief smile of appreciation that also said no chance. Besides, double-crossing old Nathan would have been like the Dodgers giving away Vin Scully. People like that you can't double-cross, not if you want to look yourself in the mirror. Fred's finished getting pointers and carriage from Buddha, and he and I walked out of the room. Fred stopped and looked back inside mournfully, and I tugged him along, irritated at the method acting. We wouldn't be visible to anyone outside the star until we got downstairs. But I must say that overall, Fred's did an amazing job. He hadn't seen all that much of Buddha, and yet when he walked across that courtyard and into the street, he caught the Yeti's gait exactly, a bit stiff-hipped and bow-legged, a rolling sailor's walk from which he could drop to all fours instantly, or so it seemed. I could hardly believe it. The streets were nearly empty. 
A bread truck, scavenging dogs. They passed Fred's without even a glance. Would that give us away? The old beggar and his young daughter. A few coffee freaks outside the German pumpernickel bakery. Shopkeepers opening up. Near the star, we passed a parked taxi with three men in it, carefully looking the other way. Westerners. I hurried on. Contact, I muttered to Fred's. He just whistled a little. There was one taxi in Times Square, the driver asleep. We hopped in and woke him and asked him to take us to the central bus stop. The taxi we had passed followed us. Hooked, I said to Fred's, who was sniffing the ashtrays, tasting the upholstery, leaning out the window to eat the wind like a dog. Try not to overdo it, I said, worried about my Dodgers cap with all that hair taped in it flying away. We passed the big clock tower and stopped, got out and paid the cabbie. Our tail stopped further up the block, I was pleased to see. Fred's and I walked down the broad, mashed mud driveway into the central bus stop. The bus stop was a big yard of mud, about five or eight feet lower than the level of the street. Scores of buses were parked at all angles in the yard, and their tires had torn the mud up until the yard looked like a vehicular verdun. All of the buses were owned by private companies, one bus per company usually, with a single route to run, and all of their agents at the wood and cloth boots at the entrance clamored for our attention, as if we might have come in without a particular destination in mind, and would pick the agent that made the loudest offer. Actually, this time it was almost true. But I spotted the agent for the Jiri bus, which is where I had thought to send Fred's, and I bought two tickets, in a crowd of all the other agents, who criticized my choice. Fred's hunkered down a little, looking suitably distressed. A big hubbub arose. One of the companies had established its right to leave the yard next, and now its bus was trying to make it up the driveway, which was the one and only exit from the yard. Each departure was a complete test of the driver, the bus's clutch and tires, and the advisory abilities of the agents standing around. After a lot of clutching and coaching, this brightly painted bus squirted up the incline, and the scheduling debate began anew. Only three buses had unblocked access to the driveway, and the argument among their agents was fierce. I took Fred's in hand, and we wandered around the track-torn mud looking for the jeery bus. Eventually we found it, gaily painted in yellow, blue, green, and red. Like all the rest, ours also had about 40 decals of Ganesh stuck all over the windshield to help the driver see. As usual, the company's other bus was absent, and this one was double-booked. We shoved our way on board and through the tightly packed crowd in the aisle, then found empty seats at the back. The Nepalese liked to ride near the front. After more boardings, the crowd engulfed us even in the back. But we had Fred's at a window, which is what I wanted. Through the mud-flecked glass, I could just see our tail, Phil Adrakian, and two men who might have been Secret Service agents, though I wasn't sure about that. They were fending off the bus agents and trying to get into the yard at the same time, a tough combination. As they sidestepped the bus agents, they got in the driveway and almost got run over by the bus currently sliding up and down the slope. One slipped in the mud, scrambling away, and fell on his ass. The bus agents thought this was great. A Drakian and the other two hurried off and squished from bus to bus, trying to look like they weren't looking for anything. They were pursued by the most persistent agents and got mired in the mud from time to time, and I worried after a while that they wouldn't be able to find us. In fact, it took them about 20 minutes, but then one saw Fred's at the window, and they ducked behind a bus hulk that had sunk ankle deep, waving off the agents in desperate sign language. Hooked for good, I said. Yeah, Fred's replied, without moving his lips. The bus was now completely packed. An old woman had even been insinuated between Fred's and me, which suited me fine, but it was going to be another miserable trip. You're really doing your part for the cause, I said to Fred's as I prepared to depart, thinking of the cramped day ahead of him. No problem, he said liplessly. I like these ostrichs. Somehow I believed him. I weaseled my way up right in the aisle and said goodbye. Our tails were watching the bus's only door, but that wasn't really much of a problem. 
I just squirmed between the Nepalis, whose concept of personal body space is pretty much exactly confined to the space their bodies are actually occupying, none of this 18-inch bullshit for them, and got to a window on the other side of the bus. There was no way our watchers could have seen across the interior of that bus, so I was free to act. I apologized to the Sherpa I was sitting on, worked the window open, and started to climb out. The Sherpa very politely helped me, without the slightest suggestion I was going anywhere out of the ordinary, and I jumped down into the mud. Hardly anyone on the bus even noticed my departure. I snuck through the no-man's land of the back buses. Quickly enough, I was back on Durbar Marg and in a cab on my way to the star. 15. I got the cabbie to park almost inside the star's lobby, and Buddha barreled into the back seat like a fullback hitting the line. While we drove, he kept his head down, just in case, and the taxi took us out to the airport. Things were proceeding exactly according to my plan, and you might imagine I was feeling pretty pleased, but the truth is that I was more nervous than I'd been all morning, because we were walking up to the Arnak desk, you see. When I got there and inquired, the clerk told us our flight had been cancelled for the day. What? I cried. Cancelled? What for? Now, our counter-agent was the most beautiful woman in the world. This happens all the time in Nepal. In the country, you pass a peasant bent over pulling up rice, and she looks up, and it's a face from the cover of Cosmopolitan, only twice as pretty, and without the vampire makeup. This ticket clerk could have made a million modeling in New York, but she didn't speak much English, and when I asked her, what for, she said, it's raining, and looked past me for another customer. I took a deep breath. Remember, I thought, Arnak. What would the Red Queen say? I pointed out the window. It's not raining. Take a look. Too much for her. It's raining, she repeated. She looked around for her supervisor, and he came on over, a thin Hindu man with a red dot on his forehead. He nodded curtly. It's raining up at J. I shook my head. I'm sorry. I got a report on the shortwave from J, and besides, you can look north and see for yourself. It's not raining. The airstrip at J is too wet to land on, he said. I'm sorry, I said, but you landed there twice yesterday, and it hasn't rained since. We're having mechanical trouble with the plane. I'm sorry, but you've got a whole fleet of small planes out there, and when one has a problem, you just substitute for it. I know, I switched planes three times here once. Nathan and Sarah didn't look too happy to hear that one. The supervisor's supervisor was drawn by the conversation, another serious, slender Hindu. The flight is cancelled, he said. It's political. I shook my head. Arnak pilots only strike the flights to Lukla and Pokhara. They're the only ones that have enough passengers for the strike to matter. My fears concerning the real reason for the cancellation were being slowly confirmed. How many passengers on this flight? All three of them shrugged. The flight is cancelled, the first supervisor said. Try tomorrow. And I knew I was right. They had less than half capacity, and were waiting until tomorrow so the flight would be full. Maybe more than full. But did they care? I explained the situation to Nathan and Sarah and Buddha, and Nathan stormed up to the desk, demanding that the flight fly as scheduled, and the supervisors had their eyebrows raised like they might actually get some fun out of this after all, but I hauled him away. While I was dialing my friend in the travel agency, I explained to him how maddening irate customers had been made into a sport, or maybe an art form, by Asian bureaucrats. After three tries, I got my friend's office. The receptionist answered and said, Yeti travels, which gave me a start. I'd forgotten the company's name. Then Bill got on, and I outlined the situation. Filling planes again, are they? He laughed. I'll call in that group of six we sold yesterday, and you should be off. Thanks, Bill. I gave it 15 minutes. 
during which time Sarah and I calmed Nathan, and Buddha stood at the window staring at the planes taking off and landing. We've got to get out today, Nathan kept repeating. They'll never go for another ruse after today. We know that already, Nathan. I returned to the desk. I'd like to get boarding passes for flight two to J, please. She made out the boarding passes. The two supervisors stood off behind a console, studiously avoiding my gaze. Normally it wouldn't have gotten to me, but with the pressure to get Buddha out, I was a little edgy. When I had the passes in hand, I said to the clerk, loud enough for the supervisors to hear, No more cancellation, eh? Cancellation? I gave up on it. 16. Of course, a boarding pass is only a piece of paper, and when only eight passengers got on the little two-engine plane, I got nervous again, but we took off right on schedule. When the plane left the ground, I sat back in my chair and the relief blew through me like wash from the props. I hadn't known how nervous I was until that moment. Nathan and Sarah were squeezing hands and grinning in the seats ahead, and Buddha was in the window seat beside me, staring out at Kathmandu Valley, or the shimmy gray circle of the prop I couldn't tell. Amazing guy, that Buddha. So cool. We rose out of the green, terraced, faintly middle-earth perfection of the Kathmandu Valley and flew over the mountains to the north, up into the land of snows. The other passengers, four Brits, were looking out their windows and exclaiming over the godlike views, and they didn't give a damn if one of their fellow passengers was an odd-looking chap. There was no problem there. After the plane had leveled out at cruising altitude, one of the two stewards came down the aisle and offered us all little wrapped pieces of candy, just as on other airlines they offer drinks or meals. It was incredibly cute, almost like kids playing at running an airline, which is the sort of thought that seems cute itself, until you remember you are at 17,000 feet with these characters, and they are now going to fly you over the biggest mountains on Earth in order to land you on the smallest airstrips. At that point, the cuteness goes away, and you find yourself swallowing deeply, and trying not to think of downdrafts, life insurance, metal fatigue, the afterlife. I shifted forward in my seat, hoping that the other passengers were too preoccupied to notice that Buddha had swallowed his candy without removing the wrapper. I wasn't too sure about the two across from us, but they were Brits, so even if they did think Buddha was strange, it only meant they would look at him less. No problem. It wasn't long before the steward said, No smoking, if it please you and the plane dipped over and started down toward a particularly spiky group of snowy peaks. Not a sign of a landing strip. In fact, the idea of one being down there was absurd on the face of it. I took a deep breath. I hate flying, to tell you the truth. I suppose some of you are familiar with the Lukla airstrip below the Everest region. It's set on a bench high on the side of the Dude Kosi Gorge, and the grass strip, tilted about 15 degrees from horizontal and only 200 yards long, aims straight into the side of the valley wall. When you land there, all you can really see is the valley wall, and it looks like you're headed right into it. At the last minute, the pilot pulls up and hits the strip, and after the inevitable bounces, you roll to a stop quickly because you're going uphill so steeply. It's a heavy experience. Some people get religion from it, or at least quit flying. But the truth is that there are at least a dozen Arnak strips in Nepal that are much worse than the one at Lukla, and unfortunately for us, the strip at J was at about the top of that list. First of all, it hadn't begun life as an airstrip at all. It began as a barley terrace, one terrace among many, on a mountainside above a village. They widened it and put a windsock at one end and tore out all the barley, of course, and that was it instant airstrip. Not only that, but the valley it was in was a deep one, say 5,000 feet, and very steep-sided, with a nearly vertical headwall just a mile upstream from the airstrip, and a sharp dogleg just a mile or so downstream, and really nobody in their right minds would think to put an airstrip there. 
I became more and more convinced of this as we made a ten-thousand-foot dive into the dogleg and pulled up against one wall of the valley, so close to it that I could have made a good estimate of the barley count per hectare if I'd been inclined to. I tried to reassure Buddha, but he was working my candy wrapper out of the ashtray and didn't want to be disturbed. Nice to be a yeti sometimes. I caught sight of our landing strip and watched it grow bigger, say, to the size of a ruler, and then we landed on it. Our pilot was good. We only bounced twice and rolled to a stop with yards to spare. 17. And so we came to the end of our brief association with Buddha the Yeti, having successfully liberated him from men who would no doubt become major lecturers on the crank circuit forever after. I have to say that Buddha was one of the nicest guys I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, and certainly among the coolest. Unflappable, really. But to finish, we collected our packs and hiked all that afternoon up the headwall of that valley and along a forested high valley to the west of it. We camped that night on a broad ledge above a short falls between two monster boulders. Nathan and Sarah shared one tent, Buddha and I another. Twice I woke and saw Buddha sitting in the tent door, looking out at the immense valley wall facing us. The next day we hiked long and hard, up continuously, and finally came to the site of the expedition's spring camp. We dropped our packs and crossed the river on a new bridge made of bamboo, and Nathan and Buddha led us up the cross-country route, through the forest to the high box canyon where they had first met. By the time we got up there it was late afternoon, and the sun was behind the mountains to the west. Buddha seemed to understand the plan as always. He took off my Dodger's cap and gave it back to me, having shed all the rest of his clothes back at camp. I had always treasured that cap, but now it only seemed right to give it back to Buddha. He nodded when I did and put it back on his head. Nathan put the fossil necklace around Buddha's neck, but the Yeti took it off and bit the cord apart and gave a fossil seashell to each of us. It was quite a moment. Who knows but what Yetis didn't eat these shellfish in a previous age. I know, I know, I've got the time scales wrong or so they say, but believe me, there was a look in that guy's eye when he gave us those shells that was ancient. I mean, old. Sarah hugged him. Nathan hugged him. I'm not into that stuff. I shook his skinny, strong right hand. Goodbye for Fred's, too, I told him. Namaste, he whispered. Oh, Buddha, Sarah said, sniffling, and Nathan had his jaw clamped like a vice. Quite the sentimental moment. I turned to go and sort of pulled the other two along with me. There wasn't that much light left after all. Buddha took off upstream, and last I saw him, he was on top of a riverside boulder, looking back down at us curiously, his wild russet fur suddenly groomed and perfect-looking in its proper context. My Dodger's cap looked odd indeed. That Yeti was a hard man to read sometimes, but it seemed to me then that his eyes were sad. His big adventure was over. On the way back down, it occurred to me to wonder if he wasn't in fact a little crazy, as I had thought once before. I wondered if he might not walk right into the next camp he found and sit down and croak namaste, blowing all the good work we'd done to save him from civilization. Maybe civilization had corrupted him already, and the natural man was gone for good. I hope not. If so, you've probably already heard about it. Well, things were pretty subdued in the old expedition camp that night. We got up the tents by lantern light and had some soup and sat there looking at the blue flames of the stove. I almost made a real fire to cheer myself up, but I didn't feel like it. Then Sarah said, with feeling, I'm proud of you, Nathan. And he began to do his Coleman lantern glow. He was so happy. I would be, too. In fact, when she said, 
I'm proud of you too, George. You gave me a peck on the cheek. It made me grin, and I felt a pang of, well, a lot of things. Pretty soon they were off to their tent. Fine for them, and I was happy for them, really, but I was also feeling a little like old Snidley Whiplash at the end of the Dudley Do-Right episode, left out in the cold with Dudley getting the girl. Of course I had my fossil seashell, but it wasn't quite the same. I pulled the Coleman over and looked at that stone shell for a while. Strange object. What had the Yeti who drilled the little hole through it been thinking? What was it for? I remembered the meal on my bed, Buddha and me solemnly chomping on wafers and picking over the supply of jelly beans. And then I was all right. That was enough for me. And more than enough. 18. Back in Kathmandu, we met Fred's and found out what had happened to him over schnitzel parisienne and apple strudel at the old Vienna. By noon, I figured you all were long gone. So when the bus stopped for a break at Lamo Sangu, I hopped off and walked right up to these guys' taxi. I did my Buddha thing, and they almost died when they saw me coming. It was a Drakian and two of those Secret Service guys who chased us out of the Sheraton. When I took off the cap and shades, they were fried, naturally. I said, man, I made a mistake. I wanted to go to Pakara. This isn't Pakara. They were so mad, they started yelling at each other. What's that, says I? You all made some sort of mistake, too? What a shame. And while they were screaming at each other and all, I made a deal with a taxi driver to take me back to Kathmandu, too. The others weren't too happy about that, and they didn't want to let me in, but the cabbie was already pissed at them for hiring him to take his car over that terrible road, no matter what the fare. So when I offered him a lot of rupees, he was pleased to stick those guys somehow, and he put me in the front seat with him, and we turned around and drove back to Kathmandu. I said, you drove back to Kathmandu with the Secret Service? How did you explain the fur taped to the baseball cap? I didn't. So, anyway, on the way back, it was Silent City behind me, and it got pretty dull, so I asked them if they had seen the latest musical disaster movie from Bombay. What? Nathan said. What's that? Don't you go see them? They're showing all over town. We do it all the time. It's great. You just smoke a few bowls of hash and go see one of these musicals they make that last about three hours, no subtitles or anything, and they're killers. Incredible. I told these guys that's what they should do. You told the Secret Service guys they should smoke bowls of hash. Sure, they're Americans, aren't they? Anyway, they didn't seem too convinced, and we still had a hell of a long way to go to Kathmandu, so I told them the story of the last one I saw. It's still in town. You sure you're not going to go see it? I don't want to spoil it for you. We convinced him we wouldn't. Well, it's about this guy who falls in love with a gal he works with, but she's engaged to their boss, a real crook who is contracted to build the town's dam. The crook is building the dam with some kind of bird shit, it looked like, instead of cement. But while he was scamming that, he fell into a mixer and was made part of the dam. So the guy and the gal get engaged, but she burns her face light in a stove. She heals pretty good. But after that, when he looks at her, he sees through her to her skull, and he can't handle it. So he breaks the engagement, and she sings a lot, and she disguises herself by pulling her hair over that side of her face and pretending to be someone else. He meets her and doesn't recognize her and falls in love with her and she reveals who she is and sings that he should fuck off heavy singing on all sides at that point and he tries to win her back and she says no way and all the time it's raining cats and dogs and finally she forgives him and they're all happy again but the dam breaks right where the crook was weakening it and the whole town is swept away singing like crazy but these two manage to grab hold of a stupa sticking up out of the water and then the floods recede and there they are hanging there together and they live happily ever after great man a classic How'd the Secret Service like it? I asked. Well, you didn't say. I guess I didn't like the ending. But I could tell, watching Nathan and Sarah grinning hand in hand across the table, that they liked the ending just fine. 19. Oh, one more thing. You must not tell anyone about this. Okay? 
There you go. What a cracking story. I do think you'll agree there. Oh, fantastic. Big thank you to Kim Stanley Robinson. What an amazing story. I just love that. As soon as I heard it, as soon as I read it, you know what I mean? It was just fantastic. Makes you smile all over as well. And it wouldn't have been, you know, the story without that fantastic narration. Josh, excellent. And, and it just took Josh, he said, ages to get that sorted out. And I really appreciate it. And Josh, everyone else does as well. So thank you so much. Get some more. We'll get some more work off Josh, I'm sure. <laughs> So that is Aura's Lights 173. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please, you know, again, drop us an email. Just say hello. Be nice to hear from you. I want to thank everyone for doing today's show, helping to put together a show, from the art right through to all the fact articles and the stories. Just been a, it's been a great little show. Thank you so much. Don't forget, if anyone's out there wants to support Starship so far, we are in the donations Apparently, D has sent off. I haven't gotten them just yet, but they're in the post. D has sent off those signature cards. So anybody who wants to donate £10 or over will get one of those signature cards. I will send that out. That would be fantastic. Don't forget the Narrator's Workshop. There's only a couple of weeks left to go before that. And please, if you want to be in on the Narrator's Workshop, do support there. And if you want to support Starship Sofa via the Sanatorium, sign up there. You will get the Sanatorium shows. And you'll keep this little girl flying high. And again, don't forget Starship Sova and the Hugos. If you have a vote for the Hugo Awards, don't forget Starship Sova for Best Fanzine and Best Related Work for the Fred Paul and Jack Vance interview I did. There you go. So there you go. Starship Sova 173 put to bed. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A fatly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.